BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast is brought to you by lynda.com. lynda.com is an easy and affordable way to help individuals and organizations learn. It's like a bank of courses and all the things that the people who work for you need to know or your fellow employees or just you yourself if you are a professional of any kind. Instantly stream thousands of courses created by experts on business, software, web development, graphic design, and more. And right now you can get seven days of this for free. Even if you're just curious and you want to see what lynda.com is all about, you can do that for one week for free by going to lynda.com slash smart. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash smart. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart podcast in between episode 9, episode 38. This is an in-between episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, so that means no expert, no guest, no cookies, but we will still be talking about the psychology of self-delusion and the neuroscience and psychology behind reasoning and decision-making and judgments and all those sorts of things. This episode will be all about the halo effect, which is something that you have definitely experienced, you will experience again, and it's something that's worth understanding so that you can avoid any negative consequences from um, not knowing what will happen when you fall prey to it and also being able to understand and recognize when it is likely to pop up in your life. So I will be reading, uh, an excerpt from you are now less dumb. Um, you may not know this, you, uh, well, you probably know this, but you may not know that this podcast was born from two books. The first one is you are not so smart. And the second one is you are now less dumb. And, uh, I'm, I've read several excerpts from both books. This episode of the podcast, I'm going to read a new excerpt from You Are Now Less Dumb. And then I'm going to also include all the other excerpts I've read from the book after that. So the first one is something fresh and new for you. And then the rest of them are from previous episodes. But um, the the second book just came out in paperback. I mentioned that in a, re, in a recent episode, but uh, I thought that this would be a good episode to remind everyone. If you want to pick up the second book and you haven't done that yet, you can now get it in paperback which if you if you waited to get the paperback you actually will get a book that is superior in one, at least in one way uh it has one typo removed so there is one fewer typo in the paperback version versus the hardcover so you actually uh you win out you get a superior product unless the hardcover thing is a deal breaker for you so uh i don't want to harp on it too much the uh it's always weird and awkward when i 
start trying to promote my things, but I want you to know that you can get the paperback if you are now less dumb. And if you liked the first book or you just like this podcast, I guarantee you will love you are now less dumb. And, uh, you know, you will get a book and you will be supporting the show at the same time. So enough of that. Oh, oh, one more thing. Um, this episode will be the first episode featuring the band Mogwai. Much of the background music in this episode will be provided by that band and the intro music. Lots of people are, are always asking this. That is Clash by Caravan Palace. And other music in the show comes from Banjo Apocalypse and also some people contributed music a while back when we had a contest. And that was Kyle Goins and Kevin uh, Corcoran. Both of those people, great music. Thank you so much. And, uh, this episode is going to mark a new band contributing music to the show. Usually the music beds are all done by Drew Garraway, uh, and you can find him at on SoundCloud as Synthetic Motion. But uh, this episode is going to be music by the band Mogwai. I recently contacted them. They were awesome. They said they would love to put music in the show, and so you're going to hear some of it. Uh, they are amazing and great and wonderful and cool, and thank you very much. So, uh, okay, enough intro. Here is... The Halo Effect. of educational and occupational psychology was a man named Edward L. Thorndike, a psychologist who in the early 20th century helped create tests for the U.S. military. These tests, they measured, well, they measured intelligence and aptitude for soldiers, and he went on to develop learning tools for teachers and other sorts of tests for other kinds of professionals. He was particularly interested in what happens when you are asked to turn the qualitative into the quantitative, something businesses and schools still do all the time in their pursuit of efficiency and excellence. In their efforts to get a bit better each semester and quarter, institutions have long adored reports, exams, tests, and reviews, turning people into numbers. And that makes it a lot easier to present charts and graphs to your CEO or school board, so it made sense that such an environment would be a great place to observe the effect of quantification on behavior and perception. Over time, as Thorndike was exposed to more and more reports, he began to notice a strange phenomenon. When a corporation put a person on paper, all that person's traits seemed to correlate. That is, People seemed a lot less nuanced when described one aspect at a time. If a person were rated high on one measure, say, reliability, he would then be rated highly on all other unrelated measures as well, such as intelligence and specific technical skills. This pattern was so pervasive that in 1920, Thorndike published a study in which he gathered up U.S. Army officer reviews, and he showed that when superior-ranking officers evaluated their subordinates with specific instructions to judge each category separately and independently, the commanding officers could not do it. If they highly rated their soldiers' neatness or endurance or loyalty, 
They would also highly rate their ability to make decisions in a crisis or say that they had above average administrative skills. If they found that their subordinate was a bit lacking in tact or initiative, the officers tended to rate that person as wanting in his ability to inspire his men or issue and execute commands. Across the board, each measure tended to match in magnitude its neighbor. Thorndike was sort of alarmed when it came to pilots. This very much concerned him. The idea that these people who got great ratings on their ability to handle an airplane also tended to get stellar marks from their superiors on their ability to lead. He wrote that considering how young most pilots were, it was unlikely a dashing aerial hero could have developed equally impressive leadership skills. Yet, in the reviews, superior officers tended to see flying aces as prime officer material, rating them highly on unrelated skills and attributes. Thorndike called this a halo of general merit. It was like a medal pinned to their chest, an invisible one that came with the, the cool factor of being a pilot, the impressive nature of being someone who could handle something who was so dashing and miraculous. Thorndike noted that when a person was considered great at something specific and desirable, that trait influenced all other measures. And the point Thorndike wrote was that this was an error. And the other measures, they were made inaccurate by what would later become known in psychology as the halo effect. When faced with something complicated, some information that has many ins and outs, many variables are as nuanced and multifaceted, you will tend to notice certain things more than others. For instance, let's say you are in a crowded party with many conversations, music and dancing and drinking, and then a zebra walks in wearing snowshoes. That zebra in that context is salient. In another context, like in an airplane halfway to Australia, just one of those conversations or one person dancing would be salient. So when it comes to people in some context, certain traits are far more salient than others. Unconsciously, you notice what is salient with ease, evaluate it as good or bad, and without realizing it, that evaluation becomes an invisible halo that then affects your perception of all the other traits that person possesses, even if those traits are completely unrelated and especially if those other traits are much less salient. For Thorndike, the cool factor of being a pilot was highly salient, and that improved the ratings people in power gave those pilots for all their not-so-salient traits, and that got those pilots jobs they probably weren't qualified to hold. The halo effect, it causes one trait about a person to color your attitude and perceptions about all of her other traits, and even stranger, the more noticeable this aspect is when you form your first impression, the more difficult it becomes to change your attitude about that aspect. So, for example, if you were bowled over by the warmth and kindness of a coworker in your first week at a new job, you'll let him get away with a host of obnoxious behaviors later on, maybe even for years. If the first year of a relationship is stellar and life-altering, it can take a long time to notice if things turn sour later. 
If you like specific aspects of an individual, the halo effect causes the positive appraisal to spread to the other measurements and to resist attack. And beautiful people, they seem more intelligent. And strong people, they seem nobler. Friendly people seem more trustworthy and so on. And when, when they fall short, you forgive and defend them, sometimes unconsciously. But the halo effect can also work in the other direction. For instance, in 1977, psychologists Richard Nisbet and Timothy Wilson divided students into two groups, and they showed each group a different video of the same professor wearing the same clothes with the same thick Belgian accent explaining his teaching style. The students believed they were helping create a new kind of teacher evaluation in which you met the professor on video first, and then you evaluated the professor again at the end of the course. In one video, he seemed aloof and friendly, a sort of laid-back daydreamer. And in the other video, he seemed mean and strict and rude, and he talked about how stupid most college students were. After watching the video, students in both groups, they filled out evaluation forms. And in the evaluations, the students had to answer how much they thought they would enjoy a class with this person and to rate other aspects of his personality that came through in the video. They even rated his mannerisms and his physical appearance. But the most important question on the form, the one that drew a chalk outline around the halo effect in each subject's brain, was the one that asked how annoying or charming they found the professor's accent. The group that watched the video that showed a nice, warm, friendly version of the professor, they said that they thought that his mannerisms were nice, they were attractive, he was an attractive person, and he was appealing overall, and that his accent was no problem. Uh, about half of them actually reported that his accent was nice. But in that other group, they said that not only was he unpleasant, he was unpleasant to look at, that his mannerisms seemed peculiar, and 80% said that his accent was irritating. It was horrible. And both groups listened to the same professor, mind you. They listened to the exact same person speak with the exact same accent. The only things that changed were the words that he said through that accent. And for one group, that accent became another reason to like this laid-back professor given to meandering talk and daydreams. For the other group, that accent became another reason to dislike him, another defect, something they couldn't imagine having to deal with for an entire semester. But the accent, it never changed. The halo did. And when asked at the end of the study if they believed the professor's attitude had affected how they felt about his accent and other qualities, the majority of the students said it had not. They had no idea that the halo effect was changing their view of reality. Across all of psychology, across all of the studies, the one thing that seems to most reliably produce the halo effect, the one trait that seems to boggle our minds the most, 
is beauty. And beauty is, psychologically speaking, neurologically speaking, it is a shorthand. It is a placeholder term for an invisible mental process in which you're only privy to the final output. To see and judge a face is beautiful, is to experience a tempest of brain activity informed by your culture, your experiences, and the influence of your deep evolutionary inheritance. And this all adds up to an awareness that a person is or is not beautiful in a process that is still being unraveled. So regardless of why this happens, why you feel this, people living in the same era and culture tend to agree upon certain standards of beauty, and those standards seem to unconsciously influence other judgments. In 1972, psychologists Karen Dion, Ellen Bersheed, and Elaine Walster, they handed photographs out to subjects. These photographs came in three varieties. Either a person who was considered very attractive, a person considered average, or a person considered unattractive. Now, these were determined by the scientists using a method that was scientific. So, as much as I personally, and maybe you, would be uh, unsettled by the idea of labeling someone as being unattractive, it was done in the name of science. So you had three photographs, beautiful, average, unattractive. And people were asked to rate these photographs, to make decisions about these photographs based off of nothing else, just the pictures. Previously, the subjects had rated 27 different personality traits on a six-point scale, rating them as either something that is very desirable for a person to have or something that is not desirable. Things like stability and sophistication and sexual permissiveness. Based on the photographs alone, the subjects were then asked to take all of those traits and imagine which person would have those traits. Which person would have the the good ones and which person would have the bad ones. They also asked the people to estimate how happy they thought the people were in the photographs and what sort of jobs they thought those people might have. And what they found in the results was that in each leg of the experiment, the more attractive the person, the more likely the subjects would say they worked in a high status career, the more likely that the subjects would say they were happy and they had joy in their marriages and jobs and experiences as parents. And these, remember, these people are only being judged on their faces, just a photograph of some stranger who is either very attractive, average, or not so attractive. And when the subjects looked at these photographs and they asked them about their personality traits, the more attractive the person, the more this person was rated as having the positive traits and more of them in greater intensity. This tendency of the halo effect to cause physical attractiveness to color assumptions about everything else about a person sets up two scenarios, said Dion Bersheed and Walster. One, beautiful people don't just have the advantage of beauty, but you treat them as if they have a host of other presumed advantages that compound that advantage. And two, after years of walking through life, receiving treatment as though they possess the personality traits we like to see in others, beautiful people tend to believe and act as though they truly possess those attributes. In other words, the scientists said, pretty people believe they are kind, smart, decent, and whatever else the halo effect produces in the eyes of their audience. Whether or not those things are true. In 1974, Psychologists David Landy and Harold Segal published a study in which they handed out essays to subjects, and each one of those essays either had a photograph of an attractive woman or a photograph of, again, as the scientists determined, an unattractive woman. So these 
people that got these essays and they asked these people to rate the quality of the writing in the essays, but the scientists made no mention of the photo attached. So some people got one photo, some people got the other, but they didn't know they were divided into two groups. And the more attractive the woman in the picture, the better the score on the essay. The essay, of course, is the exact same essay every time. It's written by the scientists. And the photo is what's salient. The beauty is what's salient. And when asked about the creativity and the depth of the ideas in the essay, that's not so salient. So the people are, are boggled by the halo effect being generated by the photo, and they're not even aware of it. In fact, these essays were identical, and the only difference was the photo attached. And when the scientists ran the study with essays that were purposely written to be awful, the disparity between the ratings was magnified. As Landy and Seagal wrote, you expect better performances from attractive people, but when they fail, you are also more likely to forgive them. In 1975, psychologist Harold Siegel and Nancy Ostrove conducted a study that showed strong evidence that criminals get lighter sentences the more physically attractive they seem to judges and jurors. In a mock trial, the researchers had subjects read an account of a burglary after reading the bio of a defendant with a photograph. Then that photograph attached was either of a highly attractive woman or of an unattractive woman. Again, this is determined by the scientists ahead of time. They then told the subjects that the woman was guilty and that they needed to select an appropriate sentence of between 1 and 15 years in jail. The pretty woman got three years on average. The unattractive woman got on average five years the same as a control that included no photograph at all. cautionary tale about the halo effect and this is something that actually happens all the time in our lives in our institutions and it's worth knowing this so that we can build better lives and better institutions in 1976 psychologist glenn foster and james isledyke conducted a study in which they gathered elementary school teachers each with about 10 years experience and randomly assigned each to one of four groups each teacher believed that the study was concerned with a new form for evaluating students, but each group received a different description of the sort of students they would be describing with that form. The scientists told one group they would be dealing with emotionally disturbed children. They told another group their children were learning disabled, and a third group believed they would be dealing with the mentally retarded. The fourth group served as a control and learned nothing about their students beforehand. Every teacher in each group then watched the same video of a fourth grade boy going through a series of activities. The boy was specially selected to be absolutely average according to a battery of tests on everything from intelligence to appearance. And on the tape, the boy performed a number of mental and physical challenges before playing for a while. On all the tests, the child scored within the expected range for a normal fourth grader but the teachers were not privy to that information. After the tape ended, 
the teachers filled out another form evaluating the child that they had all watched. The scientists also asked the teachers to fill out a personality questionnaire as if they were the child, answering the questions in the manner they believed the child in the tape would. After everything was turned in and tallied, the researchers found what you've probably guessed. The teachers who believed the child was disturbed, disabled, or retarded graded him much more harshly than those who received no initial label and thus had no expectations. The child who was expected to perform poorly did indeed fulfill that expectation, even though each teacher saw this same identical child perform the same identical acts in the same identical way on a video that differed in no way whatsoever from observer to observer. To the people who had no expectations going in, the perfectly normal, non-deviant child completed the tasks in an acceptable manner and seemed like a typical fourth grader. The other three, they saw a child struggling to comprehend and fraught with little demons and handicaps. Those who believed he was mentally retarded graded him worst of all. So why did this happen? The psychologists agreed it was the halo effect in action. The teachers who had nothing to go on watched the tape and made assumptions based mostly on what they saw. The others knew exactly one fact about the child going in and it colored everything else they added to their knowledge. As the researchers pointed out, the halo effect caused the teachers to resist conflicting evidence and maintain their initial beliefs. Instead of updating the way they saw the fourth grader, instead of seeing him shatter their expectations, they forced him inside the confines of the box generated by the halo effect. And the danger here is clear. Ignorance of the halo effect can easily set in motion a self-fulfilling prophecy in which attitude changes behavior, which then loops around over and over, both for the person giving and the person receiving a label. So what can we do about this? What can we learn from this? How can we go forward and make a better world knowing what we now know? Well, first of all, you need to know that the halo effect causes facets of a person that could easily be evaluated objectively on their own merits, independent of that person's personality, to become instead telling examples that further demonstrate his very nature. Qualities that would be unambiguous if contemplated alone are altered by the way you feel about a person overall. When you fall in love, you're your loved one's terrible rendition of Total Eclipse of the Heart on karaoke night is endearing and sweet. When the relationship is on the rocks, that same performance raises hackles. If your professor is easy and fun, his aloofness and unorganized office are part of his overall appeal. If his tests are pulling down your grade point average, his absent-mindedness causes your fist to flex whenever he is near. If your sister is fun to be around and makes you laugh, she can show up late to dinner and you will just chalk it up to another wonderfully silly aspect of her persona. If she is a morose grouch, her lack of punctuality is one more thing you have to put up with. True objectivity then is it's almost impossible when dealing with the subtle nuances of the people in your life. Thinking about people changes your perceptions of their appearance, voice, actions, and everything else. It creates filters that alter the raw sensory experience. So don't put people or anything else on pedestals, not even your children. Avoid global labels such as genius or weirdo. Realize that those closest get the benefit of the doubt and so do the most beautiful and radiant among us. No, the halo effect causes you to see a nice person as temporarily angry and an angry person is temporarily nice. Know that one good quality or a memory 
of several can keep in your life people who may be doing you more harm than good. Pay attention to the fact that when someone seems nice and upbeat, the words coming out of his or her mouth will change in meaning. And if that same person were depressive, arrogant, or foul in some other way, your perceptions of those same exact words would change along with the person's other features. When evaluating a person's skills, make an effort to keep her attributes separate from her appearance or demeanor or fame. Make sure the person is anonymous during your final evaluation and then evaluate each attribute separately. If comparing, do not compare people as a whole, but judge them against each other one attribute at a time. Erase the names and faces, quantify and compare. The more you can force an accomplishment, a skill, or a measure of performance to stand on its own, the less likely any one ingredient will taint the whole batch. You, you can't prevent the halo effect, but you can use your knowledge of its power to be less dumb. Normally, on average, the halo effect is benign, and it may even be preferable to cold objective scrutiny, but it can betray you in situations that are still alien to the way your mind works. If you are in a position of authority or in a position affected by authority, know that the evaluations and assumptions of everyone from teachers to generals is perpetually in error, clouded and tinted by the global and emotionally charged assessments of the overall qualities of others. When making judgments of character, such as choosing who deserves your vote, know that things such as business experience or speaking skills or height or symmetry or seeming capacity to enjoy beer in your presence are not trivial matters. They can powerfully change the way you judge all the person's other qualities. The people in your life possess or lack virtues colored by the radiance or gloom of the halo you create for them early on. That was the halo effect, and uh, there's a lot more in the chapter than what you heard. I chopped it up, I rewrote it, made it easier to listen to as one piece. And if you want to learn more about the halo effect, read more about it in You Are Now Less Dumb. You're going to hear other excerpts from the book coming up next after these uh, messages from sponsors. And thank you to Mogwai. All the music you've heard underneath the show today has been by Mogwai. Go out there and buy their stuff. Don't just listen to it on YouTube. Don't just listen to it on Spotify. Sample it there, but go actually buy it put some money in their hat and uh support them they are so great thank you so much mogwai and now let's listen to some words from our sponsors With the holidays here you don't have time to go to the post office there's traffic and there's Parking, it will be packed. There will be people getting there at the last minute with 200 packages going to 200 different relatives. And you will be standing there in line thinking, why 
Do I do this when I have an app that will call cars to my location? You need to join the future and stamps.com is in that future. That's what I use. That is what I do. I recently just sent a package to James Burke. You know, uh, he was on a recent episode and um, he's in France right now. I wanted to send this giant package to him. Uh, it's a gift for Christmas because he is my uh, one of my idols and he was on the show. And now that I have spoken with him a couple times, I can send him gifts around this time of year. But I didn't want to go to the post office. Instead, I got this, and this is an enormous package I have. I wrapped it up, used the super awesome silver scale that uh, comes with your membership, plugged it into my computer, put the package on it, got all of my stuff uh, print it out on sticky paper, put it on the package and never ever did I have to go to the post office. They actually will come to your door and pick that up. It is amazing. With stamps.com, you can avoid all the hassle of going to post office during the busy holiday season. Everything you would do at the post office, you can do right from your desk. You can buy and print official U S postage using your own computer and printer. You can print postage for any letter or package the instant you need it. And then the mailman will pick it up. It is easy. It is convenient. I use it. I think you should use it. And right now, you can use a special offer. Right now, there's a special offer just for people listening to this podcast. Use the promo code SMART and you will get a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer, which includes the digital scale and $55 of free postage. Oh, dear. Yes, that is a really cool offer. Don't wait. Go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone on the top of that homepage and type in smart. S-M-A-R-T, smart. That's stamps.com. Go there, click on the microphone, enter the word smart, and you will get this special offer. Stamps.com. And please do not tell James Burke about the package that's coming. So you're trying to buy a gift this year for someone in your life who is very hard to buy for. Let's say it's a man and this man is someone who just buys stuff for himself all the time and you want something personalized. You want to get something that's also useful. You want to buy something that this person is going to enjoy and use and you can't decide on what to do because everything feels like a ripoff. Everything feels like you, uh, you're just going to buy something that everyone else is getting. Well, I have you covered. It's called Harry's com. I got a package from them. Let me tell you the experience that this person is going to get. You get this package in the mail, comes to your doorstep. You go, what is this nice thing? A nice brown package. You, you open it up. It's no plastic anywhere on this thing. Open it up. The, oh, what? That is the nicest razor I have ever seen. It somehow looks like an old fashioned razor, but from the future. Like it's some sort of retro, super awesome razor. And there's all, what is this? Shaving cream. And what is this? A little thing. Oh, so many little doodads, such great packaging. Someone loves me. This is what you get with Harry's. And let me tell you, the shaving experience with this thing is incredible. I immediately went into the shower and played with this like it was a new toy. I put some shaving cream from them on my neck. When I started shaving, it felt like I was just wiping a wet finger on my neck and the stubble was disappearing like magic. Or it also kind of in some way was almost like this rustic, old-fashioned yet futuristic laser beam coming out of some sort of uh, steampunk super razor was also happening. It is a really cool product. I've never gotten this close of a shave from anything that you can buy from someone who makes things for shaving. It's great. And here's the deal. Look, if you're going to get a, a gift for someone, have you ever actually thought about getting someone a razor for a gift? That would be weird. Like you, you open it up and you're like, Oh, okay. Thank you. A razor from Walmart, a razor from the, uh, from the drugstore. Okay. It's like getting someone toilet paper or something for a gift. It's not presentable. It looks cheap. There's nothing special. There's no personalization. Harry's 
will solve this problem for you. You can get a razor for someone for Christmas or for any other occasion. Harry's offers the Winter Winston set. You get this really cool razor that I told you about, and you get three high-quality blades, their amazing foaming shave gel or shaving cream, and it's already wrapped up and the shipping is free. And just in time for the holidays, Harry's is gifting all listeners of this show $5 off their first purchase with the promo code SOSMART. That's $5 off the winter set, an engraved handle, and the basic kit. So let's say you go with the basic kit, you'll get the razor, three blades, a tube of their foaming shave gel or shave cream for $10. That is half the price of other big branded blades. And you're getting quality German-made chrome super blades shipped straight to your front door. You get to skip the lines. They know you got them something and you were thoughtful about it. It is unique and cool and interesting and awesome. And here's the thing. Harry's also is the company that gives back. They, when you buy this gift, know that Harry's donates 1% of their sales and they volunteer 1% of their employees time to the community with their community partner city year. So go to harrys.com right now. They will give you $5 off. If you type in my coupon code, so smart with your first purchase, that's harrys.com. Coupon code so smart, five dollars off. Start shaving better today. And now we return to our program. Going forward, all content in this episode is now excerpts from you are now less dumb things that i have previously recorded in previous episodes but uh i thought it'd be nice to have an entire episode of nothing but excerpts from that book so if you like this stuff pick up the book you are now less dumb it's the sequel to the first book you are not so smart and of course all of these things have been uh, edited down and rewritten and sort of rearranged so that they uh they sound better as a podcast piece so if you're interested in these topics and you want the full versions you can find them in that book all right here we go our first excerpt is The Narrative Bias. At the Ypsilanti State Hospital in Ypsilanti, Michigan, right around the time the hula hoop was invented, three men began a conversation that would drag each into the depths of madness real madness, the kind that earns prescriptions. This trialogue lasted two years, and at times it soared, with each man literally singing in harmony with the others. At other times it languished, descending into physical violence. Still. Each morning, the men met and each tried at length to get the other two to see things his way. Clyde Benson, Joseph Castle, and Leon Gabor had lived very different lives leading up to their meeting. Benson was a widowed and remarried heavy-drinking farmer in his 70s. Castle was a clerk in his 50s with a desire to be a writer, yet was too hobbled and passive and haunted by a terrible childhood to realize his dream. Gabor was a man nearing 40, wandering from job to job after being transformed by the war. What tied them together was the conviction that they were the living reincarnation of the Messiah. 
That is to say, each man thought he was Jesus Christ. The psychologist Milton Rokaic brought the three institutionalized men together in a psychiatric ward where he could observe them. In his book, The Three Christ of Ypsilanti, Rokaic writes that he had the men assigned adjacent beds, had them eat together, gave them jobs in which they interacted regularly. In addition, he had them meet daily in a visitation room with a wooden table at its center, across from windows that allowed in light from the world of the sane. Making them constant companions, Rokaic thought, might cause their delusions to cancel one another out. In his opinion, it was a rare and thrilling opportunity to have three individuals claiming the same identity, and not just any identity, but one that didn't allow for any wiggle room. The Bible said there was one Son of God, and now three people who asserted that status as their own sat at the same table with science looking on. Surely, Rokaic believed something would be revealed about the nature of delusion, belief, and the self. And indeed, something was. When first asked to introduce themselves, Castle didn't disappoint. He said, my name is Joseph Castle. And when asked if he had anything else to add, he said, yes, I'm God. Benson was a bit more ambiguous, saying that he made God five and Jesus six. Gabor followed, saying his birth certificate stated he was the reincarnation of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Soon after, an argument began, with each man revealing how insulted he was by the other's claims. Through the lens of hindsight, it seems not only unethical, but also cruel to toss mentally unstable people in a room just to see what happens. But Rokaic was seeking a cure. He wanted the men to awaken to the epiphany of their true identities because, as he wrote, it seems a terrible thing for a person not to know who he really is. After that first meeting, Rokaic was crestfallen. As he put it, the confrontation was less stormy than I had expected. When their meeting adjourned, the men just sort of walked away, feeling confident in their own views of reality. Rokaic wrote, Perhaps they didn't fully grasp the extraordinary nature of this confrontation, at least not in the way we did. As the men met again and again, their individual delusions unfurled, showing their complex and Byzantine structures, each man's explanation of how it came to be that Jesus Christ was trapped in a psychiatric ward in Michigan manifested as a unique maze of stories and logic that would make sense internally for a moment, only to collapse as Rokiak prodded. As the constructs fell apart, the men swiftly rebuilt them, and the conversations took on the appearance of people exchanging lines from different plays. Still, each man remembered the intricate details of the other two men's explanations and picked them apart as if he were a political candidate debating the finer points of an opponent's tax plan. Rokiak wrote that he would attempt in each session to bring the conversation back to the impossibility of three Christs and ask the men to address the problem. When forced to explain, they didn't come to a sudden realization that they were being delusional. They didn't reel in awe after being struck by the insight that their identities were showing cracks. No, they just dismissed the other two men's claims. 
Benson said the other two were some form of cyborg and not actually alive. Inside them, he said, machines controlled their movements and provided their voices. Gabor believed the other two men were lesser gods who came after him and then were reincarnated. Castle's explanation was the most accurate and prosaic. He said, the other two men were insane patients in a mental hospital. When asked to explain themselves, the men usually dismissed the fact that they were in an institution. They weren't patients, they said. They were Jesuses who just happened to be in that room at the moment. The posers ought to wise up and worship the true Christ, who was, according to each man, he. Within three weeks, the arguments led to punches, but the violence didn't last. Over the 25 months, most of the conversations were quite civil, albeit filled with nonsense. The one thing that remained constant was that each man refused to budge when it came to his belief. Instead, he desperately defended his delusion. But the methods differed. Benson was stoic but inarticulate, so he lashed out with rage and threats. Castle was more eccentric, tossing bread into toilets and books out windows. He walked away from the arguments and tried to steer the conversations in a different direction when they threatened his identity. Cavour, though, was the intellectual member of the trio, and his delusions were dazzling to the point of being reasonable at times. He spoke at length at the meeting, delivering impassioned, eloquent soliloquies, and often led the discussions and asked his own questions of the other men. Their talks ranged from hunting to whale bones to cookies in England. Still, Gabor's speeches dove right to the bottom of the grandly nonsensical. When quiet, he told Rokaic he was actually grinding negative engrams in the squelch chamber inside his skull. As time went on, talk of Jesus and God faded. Rokaic wrote, The three Christs were, if not rational men, at least men of a type we had all experienced before. They were rationalizing men. Rationalizing men. The sort of people who find a way to spin everything around them into a tale that makes sense in the context of who they believe themselves to be. The three Christs never changed their beliefs. Over two years of psychiatric care and psychological examination, question and challenge, sitting across from people claiming their very identity to be a sham and claiming that identity to be their own, they never gave in. The other two guys had problems. I'm the one who has it all figured out. As strange as this sounds, from a neurological perspective, from a psychological perspective, the way these men were coping and what they were doing is not exactly abnormal. The fact that the men at Ypsilanti believed themselves to be the same man, Jesus, was the only thing that really stood out about their stories. Everything else they did fell in line with what a psychologist would expect from a human being. You seem to be able to see through the lies and rationalizations of other people, as Rokaic said. You've encountered enough instances of that sort of thinking that you let it go in person, and you gossip about it over tea. It's just part of life, watching other people lie to themselves to get by. Yet, when you do it, it gets swept under the mental carpet. You probably don't wake up and assume you're brushing the teeth of Jesus, but as you saw with the men in Ypsilanti, even at that level, 
you would probably only see through your own flaws when they were copied and pasted onto another person. Like these three men, all of your assumptions about reality come together in a sort of cohesion engine that runs while you are awake and reassures you that things are going as expected. No need to panic. You come along and you take the output of the cohesion engine and use it to make sense of reality. And your preferred method, everyone's preferred method, is to couch everything in the form of a story with you as the hero or heroine. Fighter pilots, when they experience extreme G-forces that suck the blood out of the brain, will report hallucinations. Intense hallucinations that involve a tunnel, a white light, friends and family coming to greet them. The same hallucinations that a person who is close to death will experience, a person who is deprived of oxygen. Even as the brain is dying, it refuses to stop generating a narrative, the scaffolding upon which it weaves cause and effect, memory and experience, feeling and cognition. Narrative is so important to survival that it is literally the last thing you give up before becoming a sack of meat. Any neuroscientist will tell you, a confused mind gets unconfused very quickly. When things seem weird and nonsensical to someone who's had a brain injury, the brain makes them make sense immediately. Disorientation gets orientated even if that means temporarily believing in something that is several time zones away from being the truth. And this is true in a person who hasn't experienced brain damage. A normal brain does this as well. A tangled, uncomfortable situation gets straightened out into a narrative so that the organism, you, can get back to the business of making jokes and wondering what's for dinner. The brain turns chaos into order so that you don't bump into walls and pet scorpions, and at the first sign of trouble, the first inkling of befuddlement, your neurons start cranking out false clarity. And that's what the three Christ of Ypsilanti were doing, and that's what you're doing. Creating narratives to stay sane. The lesson you should take from the deluded men in Michigan is that without your bias for narrative, you would be lost. Remember, your mind is the result of biological processes, chemical and electrical thunderstorms rippling through a cellular custard, honeycombed in spiderweb with blood vessels and other things you'd rather not get on your hands during a meal. That is who you are, and that is what is producing thought, yet that is not what you perceive when you introspect. Inside, you see a drama, you see romance and tragedy, adventure and twists of fate with you at the center of it all. At a conference in San Francisco called Being Human, the neuroscientist David Eagleman told an audience that after a lifetime of meditation, Buddhist monks are putting only a single toe into the ocean of the unconscious. To plunge any deeper, as he put it, would be like measuring a transistor to make sense of a joke in a YouTube video. To paraphrase psychologist George Miller, you don't experience thinking, you experience the result of thinking. You don't just seek out and avoid danger. You don't just react to stimuli. You recall the past and tell better versions of it to new friends. You interpret and arrange, sharpen and dull, reframe and rationalize. 
When you get right down to it, the self is nothing more than a story. It is the explanation of your own memories to whoever will listen. Who would the three Christ of Ypsilanti be without their narratives? How would they cope with their madness? You may not have convinced yourself you are Jesus returned, but your story serves the same purpose as theirs. It keeps your chapters bound. You and the three Christ of Ypsilanti are not so different. Their delusions are just much easier to see through. Their mental machinery may have been failing them, but their strategies for making sense of what was happening were identical to your own. They didn't fret and freak out. They defended their identities and their viewpoints. Looking at reality through a shattered lens, they still created narratives, stories that told them and other people who they were. Sure, their stories put them in the lead role as the Son of God, but it's not so much different from the role you've created. Just much easier to debunk. Our next excerpt is The Benjamin Franklin Effect. Benjamin Franklin knew how to deal with haters. Born in 1706 as the eighth of 17 children to a Massachusetts soap and candlestick maker, the chances Benjamin would go on to become a gentleman, scholar, scientist, statesman, musician, author, publisher, and all-around general badass were astronomically low. Yet he did just that and more because he was a master of the game of personal politics. Like many people, full of drive and intelligence born into a low station, Franklin developed strong people skills and social powers. All else denied, the analytical mind will pick apart behavior, and Franklin became adroit at human relations. From an early age, he was a talker and a schemer, a man of guile, cunning, and persuasive charm. He stockpiled a cache of secret weapons, one of which was the Benjamin Franklin Effect, a tool as useful today as it was in the 1730s, and still just as counterintuitive. To understand it, let's first rewind back to 1706. Franklin's prospects were dim. With 17 children, Josiah and Abiah Franklin could afford only two years of schooling for Franklin. Instead, they made him work, and when he was 12, he became an apprentice to his brother James, who was a printer in Boston. The printing business gave Benjamin the opportunity to read books and pamphlets. It was as if Ben Franklin was the one kid in the neighborhood who had access to the internet. He read everything and taught himself every skill and discipline one could absorb from text. At age 17, Franklin left Boston and started his own printing business in Philadelphia. At 21, he formed a Club of Mutual Improvement, 
called the Junto. It was a grand scheme to gobble up knowledge. He invented working-class polymaths like him to have the chance to pull together their books and trade thoughts and knowledge of the world on a regular basis. They wrote and recited essays, held debates, and devised ways to acquire currency. Franklin used the Junto as a private consulting firm, a think tank, and he bounced ideas off the other members so he could write and print better pamphlets. Franklin eventually founded the first subscription library in America, writing that it would make, quote, the common tradesmen and farmers as intelligent as most gentlemen from other countries, not to mention give him access to whatever books he wanted to buy. Genius. By the 1730s, Franklin was riding down an information superhighway of his own construction, and the constant stream of information made him a savvy politician in Philadelphia. A celebrity and an entrepreneur who printed both a newspaper and an almanac, Franklin had collected a few enemies by the time he ran for the position of clerk of the General Assembly, but he knew how to deal with them. As clerk, he could step into a waterfall of data coming out of the nascent government. He would record and print public records, bills, vote totals, and other official documents. He would also make a fortune, literally printing the state's paper money. He won the race, but the next election wasn't going to be as easy. Franklin's autobiography never mentions the guy's name, but when Franklin ran for his second term as clerk, one of his colleagues delivered a long speech to the legislature, lambasting him. Franklin still won his second term, but his critic truly pissed him off. In addition, this man was, quote, a gentleman of fortune and education, who Franklin believed would one day become a person of great influence in the government. So, Franklin knew he had to be dealt with. Franklin set out to turn his hater into a fan, but he wanted to do it without, quote, paying any servile respect to him. Franklin's reputation as a book collector and library founder gave him a standing as a man of discerning literary tastes, so Franklin sent a letter to the hater asking if he could borrow a specific selection from his library, one that was, quote, a very scarce and curious book. The rival, flattered, sent it right away. Franklin sent it back a week later with a thank you note. Mission accomplished. The next time the legislature met, the man approached Franklin and spoke to him in person for the first time. Franklin said, the man, quote, ever after manifested a readiness to serve me on all occasions so that we became great friends and our relationship continued to his death. So what exactly happened here? How can asking for a favor turn a hater into a fan? How can requesting kindness cause a person to change his opinion about you? The answer to what generates the Benjamin Franklin effect is the answer to much more about why you do what you do. In psychology, it's well known that the cart of behavior often gets before the horse of attitude. Now, our attitudes are uncontrollable, unconscious reactions to all sorts of things. For instance, let's imagine Justin Bieber. You feel that? That's your attitude toward Justin Bieber. It's a cascade of associations and feelings just zipping along inside your neural net. Let's try a couple more. Blueberry cheesecake. See? Nice, huh? And, um... Total nuclear apocalypse. 
So that thunderhead of brain activity is telling you how you feel about that thing that I just said. And you have to ask yourself, how did you form that attitude? For many things, your attitudes came from your actions, and that led to observations that led to explanations that then led to beliefs. It's sort of like saying, your actions tend to chisel away at the raw marble of your persona, carving into being the self you experience day to day. I mean, it doesn't feel that way, though. To conscious experience, it feels as if you were the one holding the chisel, motivated by existing thoughts and beliefs. It feels as though the person wearing your pants performed actions consistent with your established character. Yet there is plenty of research suggesting otherwise. The things you do often create the things you believe. As a professional, do you feel motivated, compelled to wear a suit? Or after donning a suit, do you conduct yourself in a professional manner? Do you vote democratic because you champion social programs, or do you champion social programs because you vote democratic? Well, the research suggests the latter, in both cases. And as the great Kurt Vonnegut said, we are what we pretend to be, so we must be careful about what we pretend to be. When you become a member of a group, or a fan of a genre, or the user of a product, those things have more influence on your attitudes than your attitudes have on them. But why? Well, there are several theories here, um, several models to explain the evidence that we've collected so far. One is self-perception theory, and it says your attitudes are shaped by observing your own behavior. Being unable to pinpoint the cause and trying to make sense of it, you look back on a situation as if part of an audience trying to understand your own motivations. You act as observer of your actions, a witness to your thoughts, and you form beliefs about yourself based on those observations. Self-perception theory shows that you unconsciously observe your own actions and then explain them in a pleasing way without ever realizing it. Benjamin Franklin's enemy observed himself performing a generous and positive act by offering the treasured tome to his rival, and then he unconsciously explained his own behavior to himself. He must not have hated Benjamin Franklin after all, he thought. Why else would I have done something like that? Most psychologists would probably explain the Benjamin Franklin effect through the lens of cognitive dissonance, a giant theory made up of thousands of studies that have pinned down a menagerie of mental stumbling blocks, including the ones that I often talk about on the podcast, such as confirmation bias, hindsight bias, the backfire effect, the sunk cost fallacy, and so on. But as a general theory, it describes something you experience every day. Sometimes you can't find a logical, moral, or socially acceptable explanation for your actions. Sometimes your behavior runs counter to the expectations of your culture, your social group, your family, or even the person you believe yourself to be. In those moments, you ask, why did I do that? And if the answer damages your self-esteem, well, a justification is required. You feel as if a bag of sand has ruptured in your head, filling all the nooks and crannies of your brain, and you want relief. You see the proof in an MRI scan of someone presented with political opinions that conflict with their own. The brain scans of a person shown statements that oppose her political stance show the highest areas of the cortex, the portions responsible for providing rational thought, get less blood until another statement is presented that confirms her beliefs. Your brain literally begins to shut down when you feel your ideology is threatened. Try it yourself. 
Watch a pundit you hate for 15 minutes. Resist the urge to change the channel. Don't complain to the person next to you. Don't get online and rant. Try to let it go. You will find this is excruciatingly difficult. A great example of cognitive dissonance comes from a book called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me by Carol Tavris and Elliot Aronson where they write about the great psychologist Leon Festinger who in 1957 infiltrated a doomsday cult. Dorothy Martin, who called herself Sister Thedra, led this cult. She convinced her followers in Chicago that an alien spacecraft would suck them up and fly right away as a massive flood ended the human race on December 21st, 1954. Well, many of her followers gave away everything they owned, including their homes, as the day approached, and Festinger wanted to see what would happen when the spaceship and the flood failed to appear. He hypothesized the cult members would face a choice, either see themselves as foolish rubes or assume their faith had spared them. Would the cult members keep their weird beliefs beyond the date? Well, of course they did. Once enough time had passed that they could be pretty sure no spaceships were coming, they began to contact the media with the good news. Their positive energy had convinced God to spare them and spare the earth. They had freaked out and then found a way to calm down. Fessinger saw their heightened state of arousal as a special form of anxiety, cognitive dissonance. When you experience this arousal, it's as if two competing beliefs are struggling in a mental bar fight, knocking over chairs and smashing bottles over each other's heads. It feels awful, and the feeling persists until one belief knocks the other out cold. One of my favorite experiments in all of psychology really helps illustrate all this and bring the Benjamin Franklin effect into focus. It's, um, it's so neat. And here's how it went. Students at Stanford University signed up for a two-hour experiment called Measures of Performance as a requirement to pass a class in 1959. The researchers divided them into two groups. One was told they would receive what would be about $8 in today's money, and the other group was told they would receive what is about $150 in today's money. The scientists then explained that the students would be helping improve the research department by evaluating a new experiment they were then led into a room where they had to use one hand to place wooden spools into a tray and remove them over and over again. A half hour later, the task changed to turning square pegs clockwise on a flat board one quarter spin at a time for half an hour. All the while, an experimenter watched and scribbled. It was one hour of torturous tedium with a guy watching and taking notes. At the end of the hour, the researcher asked the student if he could do the school a favor on his way out by telling the next student scheduled to perform the tasks who was waiting outside that the experiment was fun and interesting. Finally, after all of that, after lying, people in both groups, one with $8 in their pocket and one with $150, filled out a survey in which they were asked their true feelings about the study. Now, what do you think they said? Here's a hint. One group not only lied to the person waiting outside, but went on to report that they loved repeatedly turning little wooden knobs. Which one do you think internalized that lie? Well, on average, the people paid $8 reported that the study was stimulating, and the people paid $150 reported that what they just went through was astoundingly boring, terrible. Why the difference? Well, according to the psychologist behind this, Leon Festinger, 
Both groups lied about the hour, but only one felt cognitive dissonance. It was as if the group paid $150, thought to themselves, well, what I just went through was awful, and I just lied about it. But they paid me a lot of money, so, you know, no worries. Their mental discomfort was quickly and easily dealt with by a nice external justification. The group paid $8? They had no real outside justification, so they turned inward. They altered their beliefs to salve their cerebral sunburn. And this is why volunteering feels good and unpaid interns work so hard. Without an obvious outside reward, you create an internal one. And that's the cycle of cognitive dissonance. A painful confusion about who you are gets resolved by seeing the world in a more satisfying way. As Leon Festinger said, you make, quote, your view of the world fit with how you feel or what you've done. So. When you feel anxiety over your actions, you will seek to lower the anxiety by creating a fantasy world in which your anxiety can't exist, and then you come to believe the fantasy is reality, just as Benjamin Franklin's rival did. He couldn't possibly have lent a rare book to a guy he didn't like, so he must actually like him. Problem solved. So there are several competing theories, competing models to explain why the Benjamin Franklin effect is real, but there are plenty of experiments that reveal that it is true. In experiments in which people have to do a favor for a person who acts like a real asshole, the people who have to do the person a favor tend to rate that person more highly than another group that doesn't do that person a favor. And the other way around is also true. In a group of people who are basically nice, but you're forced to berate them, people tend to rate those people as being less likable than people who didn't have to berate them. So the research suggests you tend to like the people to whom you are kind and to dislike the people to whom you are rude. And that's an important thing to remember from experiments like the Stanford prison experiment to Abu Ghraib to concentration camps and the attitudes of soldiers in wartime. Mountains of evidence suggest that behaviors create attitudes when harming just as they do when helping. The Benjamin Franklin effect is the result of your concept of self coming under attack. Every person develops a persona, and that persona persists because inconsistencies in your personal narrative get rewritten, redacted, and misinterpreted. When the source of your own behavior becomes mysterious, you will confabulate a story that is consistent with your concept of who you believe yourself to be. Above all, when considering the Benjamin Franklin effect, remember the more harm you cause, the more hate you feel, and the more kindness you express, and the more you come to love those you help. Our next excerpt is The Illusion of Asymmetric Insight. In 1954, in eastern Oklahoma, Two tribes of children nearly killed each other. The neighboring tribes were unaware of each other's existence. Separately, they lived among nature, played games, constructed shelters, prepared food. They knew peace. 
Each culture developed its own norms and rules of conduct. Each culture arrived at novel solutions to survival critical problems. Each culture named the creeks and rocks and dangerous places, and those names were known to all. They helped each other and watched out for the well-being of the tribal members. Scientists stood by, watchful, scribbling notes and whispering. Much nodding and squinting took place as the tribes granted to anthropology and psychology a wealth of data about how people build and maintain groups, how hierarchies are established and preserved. They wondered, the scientists, what would happen if these two groups were to meet? These two tribes consisted of 22 boys, ages 11 and 12, whom psychologist Muzavar Sharif had brought together at Oklahoma's Robbers Cave State Park. He and his team placed the two groups on separate buses and drove them to a Boy Scout camp inside the park, the sort with cabins and caves and thick wilderness. So the boys arrived separately, and at the park, the scientists put them into separate sides of the camp, about a half mile apart, and kept secret from each other the existence and the location of the other group. The boys didn't know each other beforehand, not within the groups or separately, and Sharif believed putting them into a new environment away from their familiar cultures would encourage them to create a new culture from scratch. He was right, but as those cultures formed, something sinister presented itself. One of the behaviors that pushed and shoved its way to the top of the boys' minds is also something you are fending off at this very moment. Something that is making your life harder than it ought to be. And we'll get to that in a minute. But first, let's, let's go back and explore one of the most telling and frightening experiments in the history of psychology. Sharif and his colleagues pretended to be staff members at the camp, similar to camp counselors, so they could record without interfering the natural human drive to form tribes. Right away, social hierarchies began to emerge in which the boys established leaders and followers and special roles for everyone in between. Norms spontaneously generated. For instance, when one boy hurt his foot but didn't tell anyone until bedtime, it became expected among the group that rattlers, that's what they called themselves, did not complain. From then on, members waited until the day's work was finished to reveal injuries. When a boy cried, the others ignored him until he got over it. Regulations and rituals sprouted just as quickly. For instance, the high-status members, the natural leaders in both groups, they came up with guidelines for saying grace during meals and correct rotations for that ritual. Within a few days, their initial arbitrary suggestions became the way things were done and no one had to be prompted or reprimanded. They made up games and settled on rules of play. They embarked on projects to clean up certain areas and established chains of command. Slackers were punished, overachievers were praised, flags were created, signs erected. Soon, the two groups began to suspect they were not alone. They would find evidence of others. They found cups and other signs of civilization in places that they didn't remember visiting. This strengthened their resolve and encouraged the two groups to hold tighter to their new norms, values, rituals, and all the other elements of the shared culture. At the end of the first week, the Rattlers discovered the others on the camp's baseball diamond. From this point forward, both groups spent most of their time thinking about how to deal with their newfound adversaries. The group with no name, the one that was just discovered by the Rattlers, 
They asked a lot about the outsiders. The when they were told the other group called itself the Rattlers, the nameless group's members elected a baseball captain and asked the camp staff if they could face off in a game with the enemy. They named their baseball team the Eagles after an animal that they thought ate snakes. Sharif and his colleagues had already planned on pitting the groups together against each other in competitive sports. They weren't just researching how groups formed, but also how they acted when in competition for resources. The fact that the boys were already itching to compete for dominance on the baseball field seemed to fall right in line with their research, so the scientists proceeded to stage two. The two tribes were overjoyed to learn that they would not only play baseball, but also compete in tug-of-war, touch football, treasure hunts, and other summer camp-themed rivalry. The scientists revealed a finite number of prizes. Winners would receive one of a handful of medals or knives. When the boys won the knives, some would kiss them before rushing to hide the weapons from the other group. Sharif noted the two groups spent a lot of time talking about how dumb and uncouth the other side was. They called them names and seemed preoccupied every night with defining the essence of their enemies. Sharif was fascinated by this display. The two groups needed the other side to be inferior once the competition for limited resources became a factor, so they began defining them as such. It strengthened their identity to assume that the identity of the enemy was a far cry from their own. Everything they learned about the other side became an example of how not to be, and any similarities tended to be ignored. The researchers collected data and discussed findings while planning the next series of activities. But the boys made other plans. The experiment was about to spiral out of control, and it started with the eagles. One day, some of the eagles discovered the Rattler's flag standing unguarded on the baseball field. They discussed what to do and decided it should be ripped from the ground. Once they had it, they decided to burn it. They then put its scorched remains back in place and sang taps. Later, the Rattlers saw the atrocity and organized a raid in which they stole the Eagles' flag and burned it as payback. When the Eagles discovered the revenge burning, the leader issued a challenge, a face-off. The two leaders then met, prepared to fight each other in front of the two groups, but the scientists intervened. That night, the Rattlers dressed in war paint and raided the Eagles' cabins, turning over beds and tearing apart mosquito netting. The staff again intervened when the two groups started circling and gathering rocks. The next day, the Rattlers painted with insulting graffiti a pair of blue jeans stolen from the Eagles and paraded it in front of the enemy's camp. The Eagles waited until the Rattlers were eating and conducted a retaliatory raid and then ran back to their cabin to set up defenses. They filled socks with rocks and waited. The camp staff, once again, intervened and convinced the Rattlers not to counterattack. The raids continued and the interventions too. And eventually the Rattlers stole the Eagles' knives and their medals. The Eagles, determined to retrieve them, formed an organized war party with assigned roles and planned tactical maneuvers. The two groups finally fought in open combat, but the scientists broke up the fight, fearing the two tribes might murder someone. They eventually had to move the groups away from each other. You probably suspected this was where the story was headed. You know it's possible in the right conditions that people, even children, 
might revert to savages. You know about this instant coffee version of culture. You remember high school. You've worked in a cubicle farm. You've watched a, a Stephen King movie. You know that people in new situations instinctively form groups. Those groups form their own language quirks and in-jokes and norms and values and so on. In this study, all they had to do was introduce competition for resources and summer camp became Lord of the Flies. What you may not have noticed, though, is how much of this behavior is gurgling right below the surface of your consciousness from day to day. You aren't sharpening spears, but at some level you are contemplating your place in society, contemplating your allegiances and your opponents. You see yourself as part of some groups and not others, and like those boys, you spend a lot of time defining outsiders. The way you see others is deeply affected by something psychologists call the illusion of asymmetric insight. In 2001, Emily Pronin and Lee Ross, along with Justin Kruger and Kenneth Savitsky, all scientists, conducted a series of experiments exploring why you see people in the way you do. In the first experiment, they had people fill out a questionnaire, asking them to think of their best friend, and then rate how well they believed that they knew him or her. They showed the subjects a series of photos of an iceberg submerged in varying levels of water and asked the people to circle the one that corresponded to how much of the essential nature they felt they could see of their friends. How much, they asked, of your friend's true self is visible and how much is hidden below the surface. They then had the subjects take a second questionnaire that turned the questions around, asking them to put themselves in the minds of their friends. How much of their own iceberg do they think their friends could see? And most people rated their insight into their best friend as keen, and they saw more of the iceberg floating above the waterline. In the other direction, they felt the insight their friends possessed of them was lacking. Most of their own self was submerged and invisible to their friends. You believe you see more of other people's icebergs than they see of yours. Meanwhile, they think the same thing about you. The same researchers also asked people to describe a time when they felt most like themselves. 78% of the subjects described something internal and unobservable, such as the feeling of seeing their child excel, or the rush of applause after playing for an audience. When asked to describe their friends and relatives, and come up with something that was most illustrative of their personalities, they described internal feelings only 28% of the time. Instead, they tended to describe actions Tom is most like Tom when he is telling a dirty joke, or Jill is most like Jill when she is rock climbing. You can't see internal states of others, so you generally don't use those states to describe their personalities. When they had subjects complete words with some letters missing, such as G-L, which could be goal or girl, and then asked how much the subjects believed those word completion tasks revealed about their true selves, most people said they revealed nothing. When the same people looked at other people's word completions, they said such things as, I get the feeling that whoever did this is pretty vain, but basically a nice guy. They also, and these are real descriptions, said things looking just at those words, like this person is a nature lover, or this person is a positive thinker, or this person needs more sleep. When the words were their own, 
Nothing came out of that. That meant nothing to them. But when the words were from others, it pulled back a curtain. When Prada and Ross, Kruger, and Svitsky moved from individuals to groups, they found an even more troubling version of the illusion of asymmetric inside. They had subjects identify themselves as either liberals or conservatives, and in a separate run of the experiment, as either pro-abortion or anti-abortion. The groups filled out questionnaires about their own beliefs and how they interpreted the beliefs of their opposition, and then they rated how much insight their opponents possessed. The results showed liberals believed they knew more about conservatives than conservatives knew about liberals. The conservatives believed they knew more about liberals than liberals knew about conservatives. Both groups thought they knew more about their opponents than their opponents knew about themselves. And the same was true of pro-abortion and anti-abortion groups. See, the illusion of asymmetric insight makes it seem that you know everyone else far better than they know you. And not only that, you know them better than they know themselves. You believe the same thing about groups of which you are a member. As a whole, your group understands outsiders better than outsiders understand your group. And you understand their group better than its members know the group to which they belong. The researchers explained that this could be how you arrive at believing your thoughts and perceptions are true accurate, and correct. Therefore, if someone sees things differently from you or disagrees with you in some way, it is the result of a bias or an influence or a shortcoming. You often feel the other person must have been tainted in some way. Otherwise, he would see the world the way you do, the right way. The illusion of asymmetric insight, it clouds the way you see people with whom you disagree. You know, you you tend to see people that you agree with in shades of gray, but others as solid and defined in primary colors, lacking nuance or complexity. The two tribes of children in Oklahoma formed because groups are how human beings escaped the Serengeti and built pyramids and invented Laffy Taffy. All primates depend on groups to survive and thrive, and human groups thrive most of all. It's in your nature to form them. Sharif's experiment with the boys at Robbers Cave State Park showed how quickly and easily you do so and how your innate drive to develop and observe norms and rituals will express itself, even in a cultural vacuum. Just as you don a self, a persona, and believe it to be thicker and harder to see through than those of your friends, family, and peers, you too believe that the groups to which you belong are more complex, more diverse, and more granular than are groups of which you could never imagine yourself a member. When you feel the warm comfort of belonging to a team, a tribe, a group, to a party, an ideology, a religion, or a nation, you instinctively turn others into members of outgroups, into outsiders. Just as soldiers come up with derogatory names for enemies, every culture and subculture has a collection of terms for outsiders so as to better see them as a single-minded collective. You are prone to forming and joining groups and then in believing that your group is more diverse than outside groups. And a peculiar side effect of this is because of the illusion of asymmetric insight, in a political debate, you feel that the other side just doesn't get your point of view and that if they could just only see things with your clarity, they would understand and fall naturally in line with what you believe. They must not understand because if they did, they wouldn't think the things they think. And by contrast, you believe you totally get their point of view and you reject it. You don't need to hear them elaborate on it because you already know it better than they do. 
So each side believes it understands the other side better than the other side understands both its opponents and itself. You pick a team. And like the boys at Robber's Cave, you spend a lot of time talking about how dumb and uncouth the other side is. You too can become preoccupied with defining the essence of your enemy, and you too need the other side to be inferior so that you can define it as such. You start to believe your persona is actually your identity, and the identity of your enemy is actually his persona. You're succumbing to the illusion of asymmetric insight, and as part of a flatter, more connected, and always on world, you will be tasked with seeing through this illusion more and more often as you are presented with more opportunities than ever to confront and define those who you feel are not in your tribe. Your ancestors rarely made contact with people of opposing views. So your natural instinct is to assume anyone not in your group is wrong just because they're not in your group. Just a small amount of exposure to the opposition, especially if you are forced to cooperate with it, can allay those feelings. Because this is the best part of the robber's cave story. Back in the study, Sharif was able to reintegrate the boys by telling them that the water supply had been sabotaged by vandals. The two groups were able to come together and repair it as one. Later, he staged a problem with one of the camp trucks and was able to get the boys to work together to pull it with a rope until it started. They never fully joined into one group, but the hostilities eased enough for both groups to ride the same bus together back home. And many experts believe that had that study continued, and we just can't replicate that again in, in, in modern science, it's just too unethical, but had, had it continued, they might have dissolved back into one unit. So it seems like this in-group, out-group thinking, this illusion of asymmetric insight, it can be overcome. But to do so, you need to face shared problems. You need to realize that you and the other side are in this together. And it seems possible when that happens, unification is, is inevitable. And now, ego depletion. In 2005, a team of psychologists made a group of college students feel like scum. The researchers invited the undergraduates into their lab and asked them to just hang out for a while and get to know one another. The setting was designed to simulate a casual meet and greet atmosphere, like at a reception or an office Christmas party, something like that. You know, the sort of thing that never really feels all that casual. The students divided into same-sex clusters of about six people each, and they chatted for about 20 minutes using conversation starters provided by the researchers. They asked each other things like, where are you from? And what is your major? And if you could travel anywhere in the world, where would you go? Now, before the study, the researchers had asked all of these people to really make an effort to try to remember the other people's names during this hangout portion. 
And this was important because the next task was to move into a room, sit alone, and then each person write down the names of two people that they had just met at the fake party with whom they would like to be partnered for the rest of the study. So the researchers noted all of these responses and then they asked the students to sit down and wait to be called. And then while they waited, the researchers took all of their answers and threw them in the trash. <laughs> so these researchers, they then asked these young men and women to proceed to the next stage of the activity in which the subjects would learn what sort of an impression they had made on their new acquaintances at the meet and greet. And this, this is where things got funky. The scientists then took every person aside and individually told them something, and they randomly selected the people that they would tell this. And some people were told this exact quote, everyone chose you as someone they'd like to work with. And to keep each person in this wanted group isolated, the researchers also told each one of these people that the groups were already too big. And even though everybody wants to work with you, you're going to have to work alone. I'm sorry. So students in this wanted group proceeded to the next task with a spring in their step, their hearts filled with moonbeams and fireworks. The scientists then individually told a group of other people, they took them aside and said this exact quote, I hate to tell you this, but no one chose you as someone they wanted to work with. <laughs> so believing that absolutely no one wanted to hang out with them, people in this group, they then learned they would also have to work by themselves. Punched in the soul, their self-esteem dripping with inky sludge, the people in this unwanted group proceeded to the main task with everybody else. And this main task, this is uh, the whole point of going through all of this, as far as the students knew, was to sit in front of a bowl containing 35 mini chocolate chip cookies and judge those cookies on taste, smell, and texture. The subjects, they learned they could eat as many as they wanted while filling out a form commonly used in corporate taste tests. And the researchers left them alone with these cookies for 10 minutes. Now, this was the actual experiment, you see, measuring cookie consumption based on social acceptance. How many cookies would the wanted people eat and how would their behavior differ from that of the unwanted? Well, if you've had much contact with human beings, and especially if you've ever felt the icy embrace of being left out of the party or getting picked last in dodgeball or something like that, your hypothesis is probably the same as the one put forth by the psychologists. They predicted the rejects would gorge themselves. And indeed they did. On average, the rejects ate twice as many cookies as the popular people. It was the same setting. Same work, similar students sitting alone in front of scrumptious cookies. But in their heads, they were on different planets. The, uh, for those on the sunny planet, with the double rainbow sky, the cookies were easy to resist. But those on the rocky, lifeless world, where the forgotten go to fade away, they found it more difficult to stay their hands when their desire to reach into the cookie bowl surfaced. Why did the rejected group feel motivated to keep mushing cookies into their sad faces? Why is it, as explained by the scientists in the study, that social exclusion impairs self-regulation? Well, the answer has to do with something psychologists now call ego 
depletion. And you would be surprised to learn how many things can cause it and how often you feel it and how much life really depends on it. So before we talk about ego depletion and its origins, let's uh, first talk about just the word ego, okay? This, this means we have to talk about Freud for a second. Now, unlike Einstein in physics, who's still you know greatly regarded and greatly revered um, and is considered, you know, a lot of things are built on what he discovered and, and worked out and what he collaborated with others to, um, to figure out. When it comes to Freud, Freud is more relegated to his quirky place in history. He's more considered a, an early thinker who had a lot of interesting ideas. Most of them uh, have not been supported by the research. And a lot of people actually look at him as a philosopher now, as a, someone who had this interesting philosophy about people, but uh, not so much a psychologist, not so much a scientist in the sense that modern psychologists attempt to be. Now, despite his fame, despite his popularity, in the late 1800s when he was doing his work, it was not a very good time to be needing mental or physical care. Medical school was mostly, you know, anatomy and physiology and you researched the classics. You drew the insides of things and you wonder what they did. You learned about where the heart is and how to amputate a leg and um, what Plato had to say about different things. Pretty much everything useful that doctors know today had really yet to be discovered or understood. For instance, do you have a sore throat? Well, that's no problem. How about tie some peppered bacon around your neck? You have a hernia? Okay, lie down so you can anally absorb a little tobacco smoke. It was the wild west of science and medicine, and especially the, the science and medicine of the mind. I mean, there was still debate over, should you wash your hands uh, after you are dealing with a corpse, right before you uh, put your hands into the body of a woman about to give birth? So... <laughs> Freud is in this world, and in this world, that's when he developed his idea of the agencies of the mind, das es, das ich, and das über ich, the it, the I, and the over I, or what would famously become known in the English world as the id, the ego, and the superego. In Freud's view, the id was the primal part of the brain that resides in the unconscious and always seeks pleasure while avoiding uncomfortable situations. The ego is the realistic part of the mind. It's the one that can considers the consequences of punching someone in the face uh, if they steal one of your french fries. And the ego, it usually loses its battles with the id in a, in a lot of situations over control of the mind. And if it ever does lose a battle with the id, the superego will come in and it will tower over the entire system and shake its metaphorical head in disgust. No, don't do that. So this, Freud thought, forced the ego to take control or either hide behind its denial and rationalization while the superego pounded around in their head. So um, that's where those defense mechanisms come from. So you can avoid the harsh judgment of the superego from which morals and cultural norms exert their influence. Of course, none of this is true, but it is a good um, philosophical viewpoint on how people work. It's a nice metaphorical uh, narrative flowery way to see the mind. But what's fun about any kind of research is that sometimes you'll find things, sometimes you'll produce evidence that sort of lines up with these old ways of seeing things, just as you would in physics, maybe find something that lined up 
with something that the ancient Greeks believed about atoms or fire or light or the way the, the stars rotate and move in the sky, that sort of thing. Well, that sort of thing also happens in psychology. And this is what was discovered by Roy Ballmeister. In the 1990s, Ballmeister and his colleagues, they spent a lot of time researching self-regulation through the careful application of chocolate. See, self-regulation is a very important part of being a person. Remember from um, earlier episodes, we talk about how you're the unreliable narrator in the epic story of your past, present, and future. You have a sense that there is a boundary between you and all the other atoms around you, a sense of being a separate entity and not just a bag of organs and cells and molecules that flopped out of the sea 530 million years ago. That sense of self, it cascades into a variety of other notions about your body and your mind. And this is called volition, the feeling of free will that provides you with the belief that you are in control of your decisions and choices. Volition makes you feel responsible for your actions both before and after they occur. Ballmeister, in his research that he's conducted over about 20 years now, has really pinpointed that this sense of volition, this sense of self-control, it's something that can be manipulated. In 1998, Ballmeister conducted a a study with his colleagues in which he asked participants to arrive at the location where the study was being conducted with an empty stomach. He told them to all skip a meal before they come to do the research. So all these people, very hungry, their, their bellies empty and grumbly and rumbly, they were led one at a time into a room with an oven that had just finished baking delicious sweet chocolate chip cookies. And then they had each person sit down in front of two foods. On one side, a stack of these delicious, beautiful chocolate chip cookies stacked really high. And then over on the other side, a lone bowl of radishes. The subjects did not know that they had been divided into several groups and that each group was going to be asked something different. So this is what they were asked. The the first group was told, we want you to only eat these radishes. Just ignore the uh, the cookies, okay? And take note of all the sensations that you're, you're feeling for follow-up questions we're going to ask you tomorrow. Another group was told, all right, look, ignore the radishes and just eat these cookies. And then a final group was told neither thing because they didn't have any cookies or anything in front of them at all. This is the control group. They aren't facing any kind of weird decision about what you can and can't eat. The psychologists then leave all of these people in the testing room for five minutes so they can sort of sit there and ponder what they're getting into. And then the researchers, they return with a questionnaire about mood. So according to Ballmeister, who wrote about all this research in his book, Willpower, which was written with the help of John Turney, they write about how the typical radish eater, the person who was told, don't eat those cookies, they would stare at those cookies. They would peer at them with these cold uh, these cold eyes like a gunfighter at high noon. Some even went so far as to grab the cookies and put them up to their noses and mm, smell them. If they couldn't have a taste, they could at least take a long, deep drag on the aroma. Still, these people, this, this radish-eating group, they stuck to the rules. Not a single person ate a cookie, but not without 
you know, some anguish. The next group, the subjects in the in the group that did not have to eat the radishes, the ones that were told they could uh, eat the cookies, and the other group that was uh, not told anything, all of these people then move on to a second task. And this task is to sit down and solve puzzles. All each person has to do is trace a geometric figure without lifting his or her pencil or retracing any lines. Each subject is told they can take as long as they like to solve these puzzles. But what they're not told is that it's impossible to solve these puzzles. And they had made these little, uh, these little drawing experiments, these little uh, tracing experiments, impossible to actually do. Because the real thing that they're trying to study here is how long will a person attempt to do this before they give up completely? So, on average, the people left out of the room with the radishes and the cookies... These people, they worked for about 20 minutes before admitting defeat. The people who were allowed to eat those delicious cookies, they persevered for about 19 minutes. But the people who were told, don't eat those cookies, they were stuck with these radishes and they had to only eat the radishes and think about how they they tasted while looking at the cookies that they are not allowed to have. And they have an empty stomach and they're in a room filled with all these delicious chocolate fumes and this delicious confection is beckoning to them and they have to fight off all their impulses to gobble them up. They quit after eight minutes. So Ballmeister looked at all this and he said, hmm, quote, resisting temptation seems to have produced a psychic cost, end quote. Somehow, the evidence suggests that the more you restrain that which Freud would have called your id, the more difficult it becomes to restrain it. Freud, now probably, he would have said that the uh, the more your ego fought the id, the more it uh, did battle with it, the more that it had to hold the id down, then the more tired and exhausted and weak your ego became. So, one of these weird instances where things seem to line up with uh, old uh, superseded scientific theories, with a nod and a wink, Ballmeister names this process ego depletion. Now, over the years, Ballmeister has discovered all sorts of ways to deplete your ego. In one study, college students were divided into three groups. One group had to give a speech supporting raising tuition. Another group was allowed to pick either a speech supporting or being against college tuition. And a third group just proceeded directly to stage two. Now, stage two for all of these groups was to do those puzzles that were impossible to solve. But what he discovered was very strange and uh, unexpected. The... The group that had to choose either for or against performed the worst. They were the people who gave up the soonest. The people who didn't have to pick any speech at all or the people who were just given a speech and said, this is what you're going to do, even though they disagreed with it, they lasted the longest. Ballmeister says the results, they suggest that it wasn't just restraint in the face of desire that can deplete your ego, but any kind of choice at all. The subjects who didn't have to choose a topic, they were able to allow their volition to take a break, and their ego reserves remained intact for the later puzzle test. Another way of seeing this is in another study that they conducted, in which they asked people to feel or show no emotions while watching a video that's going to make you feel emotions. Uh, Either they watched uh, stand-up comedy, or they watched an actor who was pretending very convincingly to die of cancer. 
Another group was allowed to watch those videos and feel whatever they wanted to feel. They weren't told to restrain themselves. So then both groups go on to solve word puzzles and the scientists want to see how many word puzzles will they solve before they give up and say, look, these are hard. I don't want to do any more of these. And what they discovered was that the people who exerted emotional restraint subsequently solved fewer puzzles than those who let their feelings flow. And it, it all comes down to this. A great deal of your thoughts and behaviors are automatic and unconscious. Blinking and breathing, for example, they need no help from the conscious part of you. A good chunk of your behavior, such as driving to work or toweling off after a shower, it just happens while your conscious mind drifts off to think about Game of Thrones or how you'll approach your boss for a raise. And if you touch a hot stove, you know, you'll recoil without thought. Your desire to avoid dark alleys and approach embraces, it occurs without your input. When moved by a song or a painting or a kitten, that emotional rush comes without any volition. So much of your mental life is simply just not under your conscious control. And Ballmeister's research suggests that once you do take control, once you do take the helm, every act of volition will then diminish the next. It's like if you imagine a terribly designed experimental spaceship. As long as the ship travels in a straight line, it will burn very little fuel. But as soon as the pilot takes over in any way to dive or bank or to climb, this imaginary spaceship, it will then begin burning fuel at an alarming rate, leaving behind less fuel with which to steer in the future. At some point, you just have to put the ship in autopilot until it can be refueled or it's going to crash. So in this analogy, taking control of the human mind includes making choices, avoiding temptation, suppressing your emotions and suppressing thoughts, or just acting in a way that's deemed appropriate by your culture. Saying no to every naughty impulse, from raiding the refrigerator to skipping class, it requires a little bit of willpower fuel. And once you spend that fuel, it becomes harder to say no in the next time and the next time. All Ballmeister's research suggests that self-control is a strenuous act. As your ego depletes, your automatic processes get louder, and each successive attempt to take control of your impulses is less successful than the last. Yet, ego depletion is not just the effects of fatigue. Being sleepy or drunk or being in the middle of a meth binge, these things will certainly diminish your ability to resist pie. But what makes ego depletion so weird is that the research suggests that the system can also get worn out just from regular use. Inhibiting and redirecting your own behavior in any way makes it more difficult to delay gratification and persevere in the face of adversity or boredom in the future. Okay, so going back to the beginning, all those students who got hit by the rejection bus, the ones that were told that nobody picked you, and uh, after listening to the people prattle at the fake party and uh, feeling that they had been rejected, why couldn't those people keep the, keep the cookies out of their mouths? Well, it seems that ego depletion can go both ways. Getting along with others requires effort, and thus... Much of what we call pro-social behavior involves the sort of things that deplete the ego. The results of the social exclusion study suggest that when you've been rejected by society, it's as if somewhere deep inside you ask yourself, why keep regulating my behavior if no one cares what I do? The researchers in the No One Chose You study, they proposed that Self-regulation is required to be pro-social. In other words, it takes some of that ego fuel not to rip off your clothes sometimes and run screaming through Walmart because you've been waiting in line for 15 minutes. And what is that person wearing in front of you? And is that a, that, that, mm, I should see a doctor about that. So you see, 
pro-social behavior requires us to be very careful and uh, self-regulate ourselves, to be in control of ourselves. And that volition is something that gets depleted over time. So the people in the unwanted group, they felt a sting of ostracism. And since you've been conditioned over many years to expect some sort of reward for regulating your behavior, when they didn't get that reward, it reframed their self-regulation as being wasteful. It was as if they thought, why play by the rules if no one cares? It, it poked a hole in their willpower fuel tanks. And when they sat in front of the cookies, they just could not control their impulses as well as the others could. And other studies have shown that when you feel ostracized in this way, when you feel unwanted, you can't solve puzzles as well. You become less likely to cooperate. You become less motivated to work, more likely to drink and smoke and and do other self-destructive things. Rejection obliterates self-control. And thus it seems it's just one of the many avenues to a weird state of mind, a, a bizarre place that we call ego depletion. Okay. So let's, let's come to a conclusion here. Now you look back on all of this and you think about these nutty propositions that were put forth by Freud and you start hearing about mental energy and, uh, ego tanks and impulses and cultural judgments that validate the ideas of the id and the ego and the superego. And you, you wonder what we're talking about here. And that's why it's so difficult to pinpoint what is going on. We don't actually know yet what ego depletion is. We just know that we've observed it. We have evidence of its existence, but what is the, what is the model? What is the framework that explains why and how it works? Well, there are sort of two leading ideas right now. One is called the resource model of self-control. And in the resource model of self-control, they say that it's probably glucose. Since the brain uses more glucose than anything else. And since you need glucose to live, and since glucose comes from food, then maybe we can see evidence of ego depletion around the times that people need to get something in their body, in their belly. And this has been supported by some of the research. In 2010, research uh, into the way judges give out their decisions both before and after meals showed that in, um, in a case of 1,112 judicial rulings concerning prisoner paroles over the course of 10 months, right after breakfast and lunch, they found that your chances of getting paroled are at their very highest. On average, judges granted parole to around 60% of prisoners right after that judge had eaten a meal. And the rate of approval creeps down after that. Right before a meal, judges grant parole to about 20% of those appearing before them. So they're saying that, is it maybe because the less glucose that's in the judge's body, that is, the longer they've gone without eating, that they're less willing to make active choices of setting a person free and accepting the consequences, and they're more likely to go with a passive choice, something that doesn't deplete the ego, and put the fate of the prisoner off until a future date. So there are a number of studies that support this glucose model, this uh, resource model of self-control. Um, there's been things you know, where people are they drink Kool-Aid with and without Splenda, people who have had their blood sugar tested before and after doing tests, and there seems to be some evidence to support this. But the idea that glucose is the is the one answer is something that is up for a a debate. It's something that scientists have challenged. And the resource model is, uh, is challenged because the many scientists say you should always have enough glucose in your brain to exert self-control. If you're really low on glucose, there's going to be a lot more problems than just exerting self-control. And they argue that 
there must be some other psychological mechanism at play that is governing the release of glucose. And they speculate that the effects are more likely some sort of evolutionarily molded resource allocation program. So once you've completed a task that requires significant self-control, your motivation and attention are manipulated by internal forces to seek rewards for a little while before you can go back to being in control of yourself. So if an even better prospect emerges or a serious threat looms during this period of time, your motivation will be freed up again so you can press on. So an example of that would be, say you're chasing a deer for an hour and you refuse to give in to the pain in your legs, but once you do slay the beast, you then feel a strong desire to rest and eat. And if a hungry predator appears at that moment, you will forget about relaxation and you'll go back to running. And so this is called the process model of ego depletion. It hypothesizes that although you have the glucose to spend in your body, your brain will become frugal after mental exertion and will dampen your motivation. Reward cues, they will become more salient in your environment and tasks requiring self-control become less attractive. So you'll actually notice and think about things that would be fun and interesting and uh, indulgent more than you would before this uh, state of, appears inside your mind. But if at that moment the brain becomes highly uh, um, engaged in something that is um, dangerous or important, it becomes really motivated, it will happily use the available glucose. So that's what proponents of the process model say. And in some experiments, subjects are able to stave off ego depletion after just receiving a gift or just a swish of sugar water. Uh, just a taste of it or a chance. They're given a chance to engage in a non-boring task if they just proceed. This adds evidence that the reward system of the brain, it plays a significant role in your ego depletion and that glucose is not just the only factor. But look, this is something that we are still studying. Research continues. And for now, the idea of ego depletion is still a metaphor for something more complex and nuanced that is just simply not yet fully understood. Now, this is where we get to what do I do with this information? Well, here's my suggestion, okay? Despite what the self-help books say, the research suggests that willpower is not a skill. If it were, there would be some sort of consistency from one task to the next. Instead, every time you exert control over the giant system that is you, that control gets weaker. If you hold back laughter in a church or a classroom, every subsequent silly notion is just that much funnier until you run the risk of bursting into snorts. And that sort of scenario can translate to every situation in life. The only way to avoid this state of mind is to predict what might cause it in your daily life and to avoid those things when you need the most volition. Now look, modern life requires more self-control than ever before. Just knowing that Reddit is out there beckoning your browser or that your iPad is waiting for your caress or that your smartphone is bursting with status updates, this requires a level of impulse control unique to the human mind. Each abstained vagary strengthens the pull of the next. So remember, you may dampen your executive functions in many ways. You could stay up all night for a few days, you could down a few alcoholic beverages, or you could hold your tongue at a family gathering or resist the pleas of a child for the umpteenth time. And having an important job can also lead to this sort of decision fatigue. And that may lead to ego depletion simply because big decisions require lots of energy, literally. And when you slump, you will go passive. And also, 
Look, a long day of dealing with any sort of bullshit will lead to an evening of no decision television in which you don't even feel like switching the channel to get Kim Kardashian's face off your screen. Or you might even watch, uh, uh, if you've ever done this, you know this is true, you might watch like uh, censored Goodfellas and uh, between commercials as you're watching this movie on television, you think, wait a second, I have the DVD of this movie. It's sitting five feet away from me right over there. Why am I? But look, it's no big deal when you get into this state of mind, this sort of passive flow. But if you find yourself in control of air traffic or a heart bypass, well, then maybe you should think twice. I mean, if you need to lose 200 pounds, this is when you need to plan ahead and think about ego depletion deeply. If you want the most control over your own mind so that you can alter your responses to take the world head on instead of just giving in and doing what comes naturally, you need to stay fresh, take breaks, get some sleep. And until we understand just what ego depletion actually really is, do not make important decisions on an empty stomach. And now, the post-hoc fallacy. could spot the bracelets on the wrists of famous professionals in just about every popular sport, from David Beckham to Shaquille O'Neal, from the Super Bowl to the World Series, the black silicone wristbands with holograms glued to the side were everywhere. Despite their product's incredible popularity, the company responsible for manufacturing the Power Balance brand of performance wristbands filed for bankruptcy in November of 2011. The Power Balance Company made a lot of claims. Their website said that the silicone rings imbued the wearer with a faster brain, faster muscles, more powerful lungs, increased flexibility, and, as the name suggests, improved balance. It also made lots of money. The magic straps were once available in more than 30 countries, and in 2011, a company spokesperson told the Associated Press that he estimated $34 million in sales that year. In March, they used their earnings to rename the Arco Arena in California to the Power Balance Pavilion. Later, they would strike a deal with the NBA to place each team's logo on its own version of the band, so the company wasn't experiencing any financial problems when it went bankrupt. In fact, the popularity of the bracelets was peaking. Former U.S. President Bill Clinton was photographed wearing one, and so was Gerard Butler and Robert De Niro, and probably 
all the uncles in your family who spend more time talking about golf than actually playing it. The Associated Press reported in 2011 that trainers for the Phoenix Suns basketball team swore by the trinkets and that a spokesperson for St. Vincent Sports Performance in Indianapolis, where hundreds of professional athletes go to train, estimated that a third of all of its clients wore the bracelet while working out. So from 2007 to 2012, from all walks of life, from educations, Ivy League and high school, from actors to footballers to politicians, millions of people paid $30 for a magical amulet and wore it proudly in public to, as the company promised, enhance their natural energy fields, resonate with holograms, and increase natural sporting ability. Now, chances are the company would still be going strong had it not been smacked with a $67 million settlement for consumer fraud after an Australian court found it guilty of knowingly deceiving the public. See, the problem was, with all these claims said meddling scientists, was that every single one was completely, absolutely, and obviously false. The bands had no more power than a candy necklace out of a grocery store vending machine. Soon after the court's ruling, Power Balance LLC issued a statement that read, in part, we admit there is no credible scientific evidence that supports our claims, and therefore we engaged in misleading conduct. End quote. Then, they filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. But you still see these bracelets from time to time, especially gas station knockoffs that you'll see at the counter. But the original is dwindling from sight in the countries where they made a name for themselves and enjoyed dozens of celebrity endorsements. Of course, this is not the end of the product. The website's still alive, and they sell new things there, like headbands and mouth guards and all sorts of new items. And you can still find all the old products like the NBA endorsed bands at a variety of stores around the internet. In fact, I'm looking at the official Power Balance website right now and it says right here, Power Balance, motivate your life, made for athletes, by athletes. Power Balance is a favorite among elite competitors, weekend warriors, and everyday fitness enthusiasts. The hologram is designed based on Eastern philosophies. Many Eastern philosophies contain ideas related to energy. This Pivot is because the company was bought by a Chinese distributor in 2012. And according to the Wall Street Journal, consumer protection officials believe it will make a big comeback. One official, Filippo Marcino, told the journal that the company would likely expand into markets that he said, quote, are more vulnerable to alternative medicine philosophies, end quote, especially those that lack consumer watchdogs. But look, it doesn't really matter. Even if the company eventually tanks, someone else will come along and begin selling magical jewelry and other mystical junk soon enough. There have always been such products. Magnetic charms, homeopathic extracts, religious relics, voodoo dolls, weight loss ear clips, sneakers with tiny catapults in them. The potential for profit will always be there, waiting for a clever marketer to crack into the modern mind's version of an ancient gullibility. So why does this work on you? Why do rabbit's feet and other four-leaf clovers find their way so easily into your pockets? And why does your hard-earned cash so easily find its way into the pockets of their peddlers? Well, at the root is a form of magical thinking called the post-hoc fallacy. And the way it misdirects you while you bathe in the afterglow of the placebo effect has made con artists rich for centuries.
Athletes seem particularly prone to magical thinking. Pele Lindbergh, the Swedish NHL goaltender, wore the same orange shirt under his pads for every game. He never washed it, and he had it sewn back together multiple times as it rotted away over the years. After a win, tennis star Goran Ivanasevic attempted to repeat every action from that day on the day of his next match, right down to the table settings and the contents of his meals. He wrote on his blog that he looked forward to the end of tournaments because it meant he could finally eat something else. The Chicken Man... Wade Boggs, widely considered one of the best ever to grace a baseball diamond, was so named because he insisted on eating chicken before every event. He was also obsessed with the number 17, and he began practice in the batting cage at exactly 517 and ran sprints at exactly 717. Once, while in a slump, the announcer forgot to mention Boggs' number when he was called, and Boggs' slump ended with that game, and from then on, he asked the announcer to not mention his number before he played. One biographer wrote that Boggs' entire life consisted of these routines. He was a clockwork man, a person who ritualized everything in order to keep track of his output. By remaining consistent and mechanical, Boggs saw his performance become measurable, comparable. Sports can do that to people, make players and fans into statistical neurotics more compulsive than any Dungeons & Dragons master could ever hope to be. And is this devotion to a quantified lifestyle that causes so many athletes to adopt magical beliefs. If they look at the numbers and see an improvement, everything that preceded that bump is suspect. Everything that comes before a positive outcome is lumped into the mixture of rituals and behaviors worth repeating. This is the post hoc fallacy. It's been an uncontrollable tick in every human head going back farther than the oldest known lucky charms buried with cave dwellers and pharaohs alike. So the words post hoc come from that Latin phrase, post hoc ergo propter hoc. After this, therefore because of this, it is the natural assumption that appears in your head when one event follows another. You may not realize how fundamental this line of thought is to your daily operation of human consciousness, but consider this. Button-operated devices make intuitive sense because of your natural tendency to think in a linear post hoc sort of way. You press the doorbell button and you hear the doorbell ring. You press the elevator button and that button lights up. You touch the screen and the app comes alive. You press the button on the vending machine and a soft drink comes rattling down the chute. You've pressed buttons and been rewarded your entire life. It's conditioning at its simplest, just like a a rat pressing a lever to get a pellet of food. And there might though be some invisible magic taking place between the moment you press a button and when you get the expected result. You can just never really be sure that you caused the soft drink to appear without opening up the vending machine to see how it works. Maybe there's a man inside who pulls out the can of soda and puts it in the chute. Maybe there's a camera watching the machine and someone in a distant control room who tells the machine to dispense your pop sends it coming. You don't know. As long as you get the result you were looking for after you press the button, it just doesn't matter. You will be more likely to press the button in the future or less likely to stop depending on how the events unfold. Children don't need uh, a lesson on the discovery of electricity and the long perilous journal toward harnessing its power to learn to avoid power outlets. Just they'll do that after one bad experience with a penny. Once zapped, a child doesn't need an explanation about the industrial processes required to complete a functioning power grid. To get something out of that experience, it doesn't matter if you understand electromagnetism or even believe it exists. The truth about what is happening in between the action and the result 
is something that most animals, yourself included, will never consider and never need to worry about. If your toddler is blown back by a wall socket and forever must uh, explain why Lincoln's profile is burnt into her thumb, you can rest assured the experiment will not be repeated because evolution favors the sort of brain that says, after this, therefore because of this, and then I'm never doing that again. Because, you see, you're, you're so eager to commit this post-hoc fallacy. You have a habit of thinking that when one event follows another, the two events must be related, and that the second event was caused or at least influenced by the first. Because of this, the post-hoc fallacy is the kingpin of irrational thought. Post-hoc rationalization is the fairy godmother of all things inaccurate, non-scientific, mystical, mythological, and superstitious. And it makes sense that this sort of thinking would lead you into dark waters because recognizing patterns, especially if this, then that situations, is crucially important for navigating life. It's just that you aren't very good at noticing when that way of thinking is dumb. And it often is. For instance, most colds last only seven days, so whatever you take often treats only the symptoms. Still, a slew of home remedies and over-the-counter medications are probably close to your heart because you believe that getting better depends on those things, even though you would have gotten better just as quickly without them. Your civilization may dance at the same time every year to bring the rain so that your harvest grows tall and bountiful. But that doesn't mean your dancing has anything to do with the growth of crops. Your team may gather and pray super hard before every game. But that doesn't mean that you won the state championship because you persuaded an all-knowing deity to provide your team with strength against your pagan kickball rivals. Despite the usefulness of automatically coming to such conclusions, that way of thinking is still fallacious. Erring on the side of caution is still the best bet in most situations. So that's the factory setting for your whole species. My favorite example of the post-hoc fallacy is something that happens when you sort of smash it up with the placebo effect. And you're going to find these mechanisms all over the world. They're called placebo buttons. And they're everywhere. They work on the, this principle. After pressing this, therefore, because I pressed this. So the close button doors on most elevators uh, built in the United States since the Americans with Disabilities Act don't actually work the way you think they do. The button is there for workers and emergency personnel, and it only works with the key. Not all elevators, but many. And whether or not you press the button, the doors will eventually close. But if you do press that button, and later the doors do come together, a little spurt of happiness will cascade through your brain. Your behavior was just reinforced, and you will keep pressing the button in the future. And according to a 2004 investigation by the New York Times, the city of New York, at least in that year, it had deactivated the pedestrian-powered manual operation of traffic lights long ago. And, quote, more than 2,500 of the 3,250 walk buttons that still exist function essentially as mechanical placebos, end quote. Computers and timers now control the lights at most intersections, but at one time, those little buttons at crosswalks, they allowed people to trigger the signal change. The 
task of replacing and removing all of those buttons is usually so great that most cities just leave them there. Now, you still press them, but because, you know, the light eventually changes. You don't have the time to do a double-blind study of traffic signals, so a version of the placebo effect takes over, following a faulty post-hoc analysis. In an investigation by ABC News in 2010, only one functioning crosswalk button could be found in the cities of Austin, Texas, Gainesville, Florida, and Syracuse, New York. So this effect is everywhere. And in many offices and cubicle farms, thermostats on the walls are not connected to anything. For decades, landlords, engineers, and HVAC specialists have installed dummy thermostats to keep people from costing companies money by constantly adjusting the temperature. According to a 2003 article in the Wall Street Journal, one HVAC specialist surmised that 90% of all office thermostats were fake. Some companies even install noise generators to complete that illusion after you turn the knob. In a survey conducted in 2003 by Air Conditioning, Heating, and Refrigeration News, Real Magazine, 72% of respondents admitted that they had installed a dummy thermostat in their careers at least one time. A cornucopia of alternative medicines and mystical objects continue to be available both online and in major department stores. And part of the reason it is so hard to eradicate nonsense treatments is that they often do make people feel better in some small way. As far as science is concerned, there is no way a magnetic bracelet could physically ease the pain of arthritis or improve the flow of blood. But in clinical trials, people often do feel better when they think the bracelets work. The key phrase here is feel better. The important thing to remember when you don one of these enchanted baubles or visit one of those pseudoscientific or mystical alternative medicine practitioners is that your belief is doing all the work. The objects and the treatments, they're just placeholders designed to produce a post hoc rationalization. After wearing this bracelet, therefore, because I wore this bracelet. In a way, you can see the scientific method as a necessary invention to combat the post hoc fallacy. Without it, it's hard to say what causes are truly connected to the effects you want to see repeated or hope to avoid forever. It's too bad that major events in history can never be analyzed in that way. You can never know if any decision was the right one, whether your own or that of Alexander the Great or Harry Truman. All we get are the results, and we know that after this is not necessarily because of this. But thankfully, this actually has been studied. Science has had its say in the matter of placebo jewelry, thanks to the insane popularity of the power balance bracelet. In 2010, researchers at the University of Wales had subjects run through a series of physical challenges while wearing a blindfold and either a dummy bracelet or a power balance bracelet. They found no differences between the two. Additionally, in 2011, researchers at RMIT University in Australia, they had subjects wear power balance bracelets with the holograms intact or replaced with tiny metal discs and ran those subjects through a battery of tests of physical prowess, including balance. They, too, found no significant difference. So, it's unlikely we'll ever be rid of these objects. And the reason for that is 
When psychologist Lysan Damashin in 2010 handed half of her subjects a golf ball that she explained was lucky and handed the other half a golf ball that was presented as normal, the half with the lucky ball sank 35% more putts. Now, of course, the lucky ball wasn't actually lucky, and we know this because of the way they conducted the experiment. They randomly assigned that description. They tossed a coin right beforehand, and that coin decided who would be told the ball was or was not magical. The belief, though, it had an effect. She speculated the lucky ball made the players believe they were more in control, and caused them to be more persistent. It lowered their anxiety and all of this boosted their confidence and therefore their performance. And this is the same thing that was true with those bracelets. When race car drivers and weightlifters and public speakers noticed improvements in their performance while wearing power balance bracelets, the likely culprit was the placebo effect smashed into the post hoc fallacy. The wearer's could have replaced that bracelet with a bit of string and gotten the same real-world results if they had maintained the same level of belief. Thanks to the post-hoc fallacy, when they noticed some sort of difference, they didn't assume it was their own mind causing those changes. Instead, they looked for a cause to the effect, and they looked for a cause that was obvious. And that obvious cause was a holographic armband. So, Ask yourself, is it the medication or treatment or your expectation that's making you feel better? Just because your family has been using frozen lettuce to cure aching nipples for centuries doesn't mean that lettuce is the important ingredient in that cure. Just because the lady at the massage parlor has family living in China doesn't mean her suction cups will cure your whiplash. Ask yourself, if you count on certain objects or rituals in the same way someone might count on a luck-bearing rock, and be prepared to accept that thinking about a person and then receiving his or her phone call is not magical in any way whatsoever. The fact that one thing follows another proves nothing. Magical amulets do not exist, and even if they did, think about how expensive it would be to hire a factory full of wizards to enchant enough of them for worldwide distribution. And now our final excerpt from You Are Now Less Dumb, The Sunk Cost Fallacy. about how human beings deal with loss from a video game called Farmville. 
and you've probably heard of this game, in 2010, one in five Facebook users had a Farmville account. And the barrage of updates generated by this game, it annoyed other users so much, it forced the social network to change how users sent messages. At its peak, 84 million people played it, a number greater than the population of Italy. Farmville accounts have steadily shrunk since then. About 50 million people were still playing the game in 2011, which is still impressive considering the fantasy mega game World of Warcraft boasted about a quarter as many players at that same time. And in late 2012, Zynga, the company behind the game, it launched Farmville 2. And by January of 2013, more than 42 million people had joined up to try it out. And today, Farmville 2 is in the top 20 still. It's actually number 20 in the uh, 20 most popular apps on Facebook, beat out by things like Spotify and Tinder and uh, Candy Crush. So it's still there in the top 20. So something with this much staying power, something that this many people have played for this long, it must promise potent, unadulterated joy, right? Actually, I think that the lasting appeal of Farmville has little to do with fun. And to understand why people commit to this game and what it can teach you about the addictive nature of investment, you must first understand how your fear of loss leads to the sunk cost fallacy. The psychologist Daniel Kahneman, in his book Thinking Fast and Slow, he writes about how he and his colleague Amos Tversky, through their work in the 1970s and 80s, uncovered the imbalance between losses and gains in your mind. Kahneman explains that since all decisions involve uncertainty about the future, the human brain that you use to make decisions has evolved an automatic and unconscious system for judging how to proceed when a potential for loss arises. Kahneman says... Organisms that placed more urgency on avoiding threats than they did on maximizing opportunities were more likely to pass on their genes. So, over time, the prospect of losses has become a more powerful motivator in your behavior than the promise of gains. And whenever possible, you try to avoid losses of any kind. And when comparing losses to gains, you just don't treat them equally. The results of the experiments that Kahneman and Tversky did and the results of many others who've replicated and expanded on them have teased out an inborn loss aversion ratio. When offered a chance to accept or reject a gamble, most people refuse to make a bet unless the possible payoff is around double the potential loss. Behavioral economist Dan Ariely, he adds a fascinating twist to loss aversion in his book, Predictably Irrational. He writes that when factoring the costs of any exchange, you tend to focus more on what you may lose in the bargain than on what you stand to gain. He calls this, quote, the pain of paying, and it arises, he says, whenever you must give up anything you own. The precise moment doesn't really matter at first. You, you'll just feel that pain no matter what price you must pay, and it will influence your decisions and your behaviors. In one of his experiments, Ariali set up a booth in a well-trafficked area. Passersby could purchase chocolates, uh, Hershey's Kisses for one penny, or a piece of lint truffles for 15 cents each. And the majority of people who faced this offer, they chose the truffles. It was a fine deal considering, you know, the quality differences and the normal prices of both of those items. Ariali then set up another booth with the same two choices, but he lowered the price by one cent each thus making these kisses cost nothing and the truffles cost 14 cents a piece. 
Now this time, a total behavioral change. The vast majority of people selected the kisses instead of the truffles. Now, if people acted on pure mathematical logic, and this is something that Ariely explains, there should have been no change in the behavior of those subjects. The price difference was the same. But you don't think in that way. Your loss aversion system is always vigilant, and it's waiting on standby to keep you from giving up more than you can afford to spare. So you calculate the balance between cost and reward whenever possible. Now, he speculates that this is why you accumulate free tchotchkes you don't really want or, or need and why you find it so tempting to accept shady deals if they offer a free gift. Or it's also why you choose, uh, you know, decent services that offer free shipping over better services that do not. When anything is offered free of charge, Ariely believes your loss aversion system remains inactive and without it, you don't weigh the pros and cons with as much attention to detail as you would if you had to factor in potential losses. In, in general, what we're saying here is, what we've learned, what, what psychology is, 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 under, is starting to understand about the human mind is that when you lose something permanently, it hurts. And the drive to mitigate this negative emotion leads to strange behaviors. For instance... Have you ever gone to see a movie only to realize that within 15 minutes or so that you are watching one of the worst films ever made, but you sit through it anyway? You don't want to waste that money, so you slide back in your chair and you just suffer. Uh, maybe you once bought non-refundable tickets to a concert, and when the night arrived, you felt sick or tired or hungover. Uh, perhaps something more appealing was happening at that exact same time but you still went to the concert anyway, even though you didn't want to. And you did it in order to justify spending money you knew you could never get back. <laughs> what about that time that you, um, you made it home with a bag of burritos and after the first bite you suspected they might have been filled with salsa-infused dog food, but you ate them anyway, not wanting to waste either food or money? I bet you've experienced something like that, a version of any one of those. And if so then you have fallen victim to the sunk cost fallacy. Sunk costs are payments or investments that can never be recovered. So an Android with a fully functioning logic brain full of circuits of, uh, of, of pure mathematical uh, reasoning would never make a decision that took sunk costs into account. But you would because you're an emotional human being and your aversion to loss often leads you right into things like this. Uh, a confirmed loss lingers and grows in your mind. It becomes larger in your, in your history than it was when you first felt it. And whenever this clinging to the past becomes a factor in making decisions about the future, well, you run a, a risk of being derailed by this sort of illogical thinking. Hal Arquez and Catherine Bloomer, they created an experiment in 1985 that really demonstrated this tendency to go fuzzy when sunk costs come along. They asked a series of subjects, and, and you, you, you play along, see what you would do. So they asked these subjects, 
to imagine that they just spent $100 on a ticket for a ski trip in Michigan. But right after that, they find that there's a better ski trip on sale in Wisconsin for $50, and they decide, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and buy a ticket for that too. But then they realize that these two, these two trips overlap. There's no way they can go to both of them, and they can't get a refund, and they can't resell the tickets. So which one do you, are you going to go on? The $100 good vacation or the $50 great one? You can't get your money back and you've already spent the money on both. Now, more than half of the people in the study, they decide to just go ahead and go to the expensive vacation anyway. It may not have promised to be as much fun, but the loss, it seemed greater than if they take the cheap vacation instead. And that's the fallacy at work because the money is gone no matter what. You can't get it back. And this fallacy prevents you from realizing that the best choice is really whatever promises the best experience in the future or the less pain, not that which negates this feeling of loss in the past. Kahneman and Tversky, they also uh, did an experiment about sunk costs. And I love this experiment. It's uh, if you're at a party, this is the good one to bring up and see what people would do. Let's see how you do on it. Okay. Now imagine you go see a movie that costs $10 for a ticket. And when you open your wallet or your purse, you realize that you have lost a $10 bill. Would you still buy a ticket to see the movie? Well, you probably would, of course. And in the study, only 12% of subjects said that they would not. Now, imagine you go to see a movie and you pay $10 and you get a ticket. But right before you hand it over, you realize that you've lost that ticket. Would you then go back and buy another one? Maybe you would, but it would probably hurt more, right? Doesn't it feel like it's a greater loss? Well, in the experiment, 54% of people said that they would not. And the situation is exactly the same. You lose $10 and then you must pay $10 to see the movie. But the second scenario feels different. In the first, 12% of subjects wouldn't. In the second, 54% wouldn't. And it seems that the money was assigned to a specific purpose in the second version. And then you lost it. And man, that kind of loss really sucks. get back to Farmville. Remember we were talking about Farmville in the beginning and we were saying that Farmville is a great illustration of sunk costs. It's a great illustration of dealing with loss and Farmville is very addictive. In fact, people have actually lost their jobs playing Farmville. They've lost their jobs over their commitment to this game. And so Farmville is a valuable tool for understanding your weakness in the face of loss. And the sunk cost fallacy is the engine that keeps Farmville running. And the original developers of Farmville, they they knew that. See, Farmville is free. And the first time you log on, you're transported to this, this patch of grass where you float above an abeyant young farmhand eager to get to work. And his will 
is your will, and his world is empty, save this land ready to be plowed and a crop of vegetables ready to be picked. Wading into that experience, it feels like the designers have made every attempt to turn your head toward the screen in this very unobtrusive way, in the least obtrusive but most insidious way possible. It's all your choice, they seem to be saying, and no one's forcing you to proceed. Here, harvest some beans. Hey, why not plant some seed? Oh, look, you can you could plow a patch of land, you know, if you want. And this loading bar, it appears and then it quickly fills as you watch your uh, your grinning avatar and his messy hair and his uh, his virtually dirty overalls. And there's this cheery music which sounds sort of like a cyborg interpretation of clumsily extracted memories from the brain of a reanimated Old West piano player. And, it, and this music, it drones on and on. This, the moment that the loop restarts, it's it's difficult to pinpoint. And within a few minutes... You've done everything that can be done on your first garden, but there are hints all over the screen portending a fully functioning Texas ranch-sized mega farm should you plant your seeds well. There are many things you can do in Farmville once you get going. You can uh, you can buy animals, you can buy all sorts of props, buildings, devices. You have currency that you can use to get caramel apple trees and honeybees. And then you can also plow things and, and plan things and watch things ripen and, and just take care of a big farm. And a lot of what you do requires you to come back many hours later to, to, to harvest or to check on it or to water it or that sort of thing. And this is the powerful force behind Farmville. Playing Farmville is a commitment to a virtual life form. And your neglect has consequences. If you don't return, all of your investments, they will die. And it feels... If they die, it feels like you've wasted your time and your money, virtual, sometimes real, and all this effort. And the thing is, you have to return to the game later to reap the rewards of the time and money that you're spending now. And if you don't, not only do you not get rewarded, but you will lose your investments. And to stave off these feelings, you can pay the company behind Farmville real-world money or participate in offers from advertisers that will negate the need to tend to certain things. And reverse the death of crops or expand your farm ahead of schedule. And you can also ask your friends to help. That's where Facebook came in and that's how it became so annoying because the game had so many tendrils reaching deep into the social network. So people will engage in all of these behaviors. They will take part in all of these strategies to keep the fallacy at bay for a few days, but that also feeds the fallacy. You see, the urge to stay the course and keep your farm flourishing gets more powerful the more you invest in it, the more you ask others for help, the more time you spend thinking about it. People will set alarms to wake up in the middle of the night to keep their farms alive. So you're continuing to play Farmville not to have fun, but to avoid negative emotions. It isn't the crop you are harvesting but something within your fallacy. You you return and click to patch cracks in a dam, holding something back, something icky in your mind. This sense that you've wasted something and you can never get it back. Now, to say Farmville has been successful is, you know, that is an, a real understatement because it's led to the creation of a whole new genre of entertainment that was very popular a few years ago and has sort of mutated into new forms today. Hundreds of millions of dollars are being generated by social gaming, have been generated by social gaming. And 
all of the things that have been learned so far from World of Warcraft to Farmville to other kinds of apps that maybe you don't even consider to be games or, or you don't consider to have this experience baked into them, they do oftentimes use these social hooks, these, uh, these drives to keep you coming back for more, to keep you interacting with, with the program. See, like so many profitable businesses, someone is hedging their bets against a predictable weakness in your behavior in order to turn a profit. Farmville players, they're mired in a pit of sunk costs, and they can never get back that time or money that they've spent. But they'll keep playing to avoid feeling that pain of loss and the ugly sensation that waste creates. Now, you may not play Farmville. You may not play destiny you you may not play any of these games or mess around with any of these apps but there's probably something similar in your life it could be a degree that you want to change or a career you want to escape or a relationship you know is rotten and you don't stick with it or return to it over and over again to create good experiences and pleasant memories but to hold back the negative emotions you expect to feel if you accept the loss of time effort money or whatever else you have invested. thought experiment. Imagine you've dropped your cell phone over the edge of a cruise ship. Now you would need James Cameron's unmanned submarine fleet to find that cell phone again. And you could spend a small fortune to retrieve it or not because you know you wouldn't throw good money after bad. And so when an argument like this is laid out like that, logical and rational and easy to pick apart, you can pat yourself on the back for being such a reasonable human being. But unfortunately, sunk costs in life, they just aren't so easy to see. And when something is gone forever, it can, it can be difficult to realize it. The past isn't as tangible a concept as the seafloor, yet it is just as untouchable. And what is left behind is just as irretrievable. Sunk costs, they drive wars, they push up prices in auctions, and they keep failed political policies alive. The fallacy makes you finish the meal when you're already full. It, it fills your home with things you no longer want or use. I mean, every, every garage sale is a funeral for someone's sunk costs. This, this fallacy, the sunk cost fallacy, it's sometimes called the, the Concord fallacy when it's used to describe an escalation of commitment. And it's a reference to the construction of the first commercial supersonic airliner because early on, that project was predicted to be a failure, but everyone involved, they kept going. Their shared investment, it built a hefty psychological burden that outweighed their better judgments. After losing an incredible amount of money and effort and time, they just did not want to give up. And this is a noble and exclusively human proclivity, this desire to persevere. 
this will to stay the course. And studies actually show that lower animals and small children, they do not commit this fallacy. Wasps and worms, rats and raccoons, toddlers and tykes, they don't care how much money they've invested or how much goes to waste. They can only see immediate losses and gains. As an adult human being, you have the gift of reflection and regret, and you can predict a future, a future place where you must admit your efforts were in vain, your losses permanent. And when you accept the truth, it's going to hurt. is it for this episode of the you are not so smart podcast you can find links to all the previous episodes of this podcast at you are not so smart.com boing boing.net itunes stitcher and all sorts of other places the music in this episode was provided by drew garraway mogwai caravan palace and several other sources i hope you go buy stuff from caravan palace and mogwai and support drew garraway you can find him at synthetic motion on soundcloud Find more great podcasts at boingboing.net. If you buy one of my books, I will sign it either digitally or actually with a pen. Just uh, look for details at the, the book page at youarenotsosmart.com. On Twitter, I'm at David McCraney. The blog is at NotSmartBlog. You can also find us on Facebook and all sorts of other places. Thank you for listening. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns and I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before and this helped. Now a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time and the question is time for what? If our time was unlimited how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in 
with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S.